Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. You are now listening to the hottest true crime podcast in the streets. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Affirmative Murder, the Equal Opportunity True Crime Comedy Podcast. I am Alvin Williams, joined as always by my partner in true crime, Francel Evans. Oh, yes, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. Yeah, man, I'm the mailman, can't you tell, man? Gonna post What up? Fran, what's going on, man? Uh, uh, this is a special announcement because I believe, um, you know, this is the last episode of 2020. I don't, you know, I mean, you know, Due to the holidays and everything, we probably won't release an episode next week. Okay. So, you know, we'll be, you know, coming back and rejoining you guys in 2021. Yeah. Um, you know, are you, have you finished all of your shopping necessities and everything like that? Are you prepared? No. For Christmas? For Christmas? <laughs> Not at all. What do you... What, I've been uh, doing my shopping on Amazon, of course. Yeah. But it's been coming in... The delays. It's been coming in spurts, man. I haven't yeah. been getting... I've been getting one package here... Yeah, it ain't, it ain't how it usually is when you get everything at one time. Well, you know, man, you know how it goes. So, you, you know, you know, personally, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's crazy I mean, times. It's this Christmas definitely will be different because we don't even have a tree this year. No tree. We didn't get a tree this year. You didn't go get like a little mini tree or something. We was gonna get a fake one, like you have. Yeah, I got this. All right, yeah, put me out there like My that. <laughs> I got, I got pine saw. Uh, you know, uh, little hangers on it. Give yeah. it that. Give it that. That nice tree smell. But those are expensive. Oh, that's a hand me down. That Sierra's had that for years. See, I wish we it's had an investment. One. It's an investment. I wish we had one of those. Yeah, you gotta you gotta pull the trigger. See, this is the thing, man. I always <laughs> I always tell you this shit. I'm always like, man, I got this cool new Bluetooth speaker. You're like, okay, cool. I saw one on there that's like the off brand version of yours. Yeah, and then it breaks a month later. Yeah, you got it. No, man, you got to make the investment, man. I'm always telling you, you make the invest, get the quality one, and then it lasts. I'm not good with buying stuff and letting it sit. Well, that's well, man. Listen, your car sits <laughs> on tires, doesn't it? That's, that's my that's my least favorite investment, but it's a smart investment. You get you some new tires. But it's, it, it does not fun. You use you it every day though. Yeah, but it's not a fun purchase. I get it. You, you, you it depends. You, you it wouldn't depends. have fun with the tree if you could open it up. You know what I mean? Like it's but it's, it's, been, it's being used though. It's like 
you you spending money and it's like I'm not I'm not I'm spending something I have no use for right now. Yeah. It's it, like it, buying shoes and then you like, well I can't wait these in the wintertime. I just gotta wait. It's like I'm I'd rather just wait to buy them when I can wear. But then what if the shoes? What if shoes that like colorful sneakers? Yeah, they are cheaper in the wintertime because it's muddy and snowy outside. So it's like oh people won't buy these. So why wouldn't you buy them when they're cheaper instead of being like I'm gonna buy them when I can wear them and they're a hundred dollars more? But what if you see some boots? And you go, I like those. Uh-huh. I can wear those right now. Yes. And then you buy the boots. Yes. Not buy the tennis shoes that you have to wear six months from now. I mean, that's fa- that's fair. You know, that, that's that's thinking in the now. <laughs> right. You need to be thinking in the now and in the then and in the then and, the then and the later and all of that. You gotta be you gotta, you gotta be multifaceted, man. Yeah, man. You it's, it's hard for me to spend money and and not use you can't use it immediately. I get that. I get that, man. I hate investing in shit. I hate every every month when the mortgage is due. I'm like, this shit. You just go and spending money is didn't and you don't even. It's like yeah, the lights are on and the roof yeah, is over yeah, your head yeah. and everything, but like it doesn't feel like that. I'm yeah. like, I want to ball out. Yeah. <laughs> I want to take yeah. this mortgage money and go ball out. Like, right. This is not fun. Pay, just pay, throwing this money into a hole. Yeah. How it feels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that hole does keep you warm and it keeps the roof over your head and everything yeah. like that. Um, Fran, I wanted to talk to you uh, briefly because there's, you know, another crazy Florida story. Okay. This one is. Wait, Florida? Florida, yes. Mm, not surprised. Yeah, it's 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 not funny, but it is. It's ironic and it is a little funny. So this dude broke into a home in Florida about a week ago. Okay. He burgled the home mm-hmm. and on the way out. Uh, apparently the the window fell on his neck and he died. Oh, did see this? Yes. Yeah. And now his family is suing those people from that house. Okay. That's the one of the and this is I'm sure this maybe has happened before. I've never heard of a case like this. It's insane to me. How did the window fall on his head? Well, I don't know. That th- I think that's the mystery. Hmm. And maybe they're saying like, no, they saw him sneaking out of the house. And they slammed the and window on his just neck. Just right to slam, slam right ah. on his neck. And that's what I'm saying. Like maybe it was just a heavy window. And also, if you break into my house and I catch you climbing out the window, and all I can think of to do is grab, is just take the window and slam it down on you, it is what it is, man. You should have been in my house. So even if that is what that. happened, I don't know. Man. I think it was an accident. I think it was just some. But accident. how do you climb the window with your neck out first? Well, you know, you, you, you put your hands. Well, you, you put your hands out and you ease out. And you hang out, you know, you, 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 oh, go he out. was coming out. He was coming out. Oh, like he, he finished. I thought he was going like, I thought it was like a one, like he was on the first floor going out of the, no, it's not yeah. a high drop okay, from the window. Gotcha. It's, right. it's like the first floor window. It's, I think it's a, like a rancher. Oh, gotcha. And okay. he was climbing out after he had burgled. Oh, so, he so he was coming, coming out, out. feet, okay, feet first and then to hang off the, you know, to push himself off. Mm. And I guess somewhere in that commotion, the window fell on his neck. Yeah. And you know, his family, listen, I don't know this man, but man, it's, that you know, must have been a heavy window. That's, Jesus. Right? That's what I'm so I'm sure more will be revealed, but there might not be more. It might just be an open and shut case. I don't know. But they're making it out like, oh no, he he's not a burglar. So they're making it more complex, like, no, it was staged. Like, no, come on, man. You gotta be able to I know you want to defend your family and everything yeah. like that, but what he definitely was he broke it, he broke into that house. So you're painting him as like he's the sweetest guy, he's the nicest guy, and everything. He might be that to you. Mm-hmm. He also apparently broke into this home. Yeah. So if you want to say, I think they killed him. Because I do remember a story where a, a guy um, was robbing a like a, a corner store. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the owner of the corner store shot him. Yeah. And then his family, like his sister was outside. Of the, they didn't have to shoot him. That's wrong. It's like, listen, man, the, your brother or whoever came into the store with a gun and robbed the place. And it went down. Oh, that, that it went down a, a tragic way. But yeah. like. 
that guy's not a villain. Yeah. I, I mean, that's know. the possibility you should think of. If yeah. I'm trying to, this reminds me of, this happened not too long ago, maybe like a week ago, Steph was telling me that it was a kid around that lived around our way. Mm-hmm. And he went to go meet up to buy some cheese from somebody. Right. And the guy, and he tried to rob the guy. The guy that was came to buy the shoes or the guy that was selling the shoes? What, 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 which one? You're saying he came to buy the shoes, but he was coming there to rob him? Yeah, or, he, was com- he was going okay, to meet, got meet the guy to buy oh. the shoes, and he tried to rob the guy that was selling him the shoes. Got it, okay. And the guy that was selling the shoes shot him. Yeah. And the dude ended up dying. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what happened after that, but I don't know, like, you know, as far as, the, as these cases went, the family saying. Yeah, yeah. Wrong, but I'm just, that reminded me of how yeah. that went. It's like. Well, I'm sure they're super broken it's up about sad, it, but yeah, like, but listen, I mean, that. Tried to, he was self-defense. Exactly. <laughs> if I'm in a seedy lifestyle, which I think that any of that, like Facebook uh, marketplace, yeah. eBay, anything where it's like, I have a thing, meet me in this Dunkin' Donuts parking lot, mm-hmm. and I'll sell it to you. I'm bringing something, a knife or, or a gun. Or, people are crazy these days. Yeah. You know, especially, you know, I'm not wishing any ill intent on these people that are, you know, hoarding these PS5s, but, you know, if you get robbed, that's your bit. You know, you're, you're dealing in the seedy lifestyle, man. And also, fuck you. Yeah. But anyway... I'm just saying, my, my, my point is, yeah. if you're dealing in that kind of thing of like, you know, person-to-person transaction and flipping shoes and yeah. all of that shit. That's a possibility. It's a possibility that yes. you could get robbed. So I wouldn't be surprised if somebody had a weapon on them. And yeah. as soon as the shit looks like it's going sideways, I'm going to defend myself. Yep. Because it's me or you. Yep. Right? So I don't know. Those Any kind of story like that always makes me like, I don't know, man. I, you know, listen, yeah. I'm sorry that you lost a loved one, but like they were doing something wrong and it went sideways. Like if you're going to... If you're going to dip into that kind of lifestyle of, you know, being, you know, you know, robbing or stealing or whatever, you got to be prepared to face the consequences. And if, and if, if I'm having if I have a weapon on me and you're trying to steal my wallet, I'm going to defend myself. Yep. Like, that's just it just that's just how it goes. Right. Um, and some lighter news, though. Fran, how excited are you for December 21st, man? You know, I know you've been hearing the news. You know, um, the planets are going to align and apparently black people are about to get mad superpowers. Have you heard about this? No. I haven't. You haven't heard about this? No. Oh, man. Yeah, December 21st, man. I think right around midnight, clock strike 12, and then your powers will manifest. Sure. So that's been all the rage on black Twitter. I bet. And I'm very excited. So, you know. I'm what? not, because I didn't hear anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's like, you know, fun and games and everything like that. But if you were to a- acquire a superpower, mm. what superpower would you want to acquire? Man, why wouldn't you ask me this so I can... Think of a nice answer because it's uh, you know it's, it's better to catch you off guard. Let me see, a super, just one, just one. Hmm, a superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any kind of parameters around what I can choose from? Or no, no, you, no? whatever you want. Okay. You can make uh, up one, and you don't have to go comic book. You can just make some shit up. You know, you got infinite boogers or whatever you want to do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, a superpower would be to. I think I'm gonna go with just uh, mind reading. Mind reading, yes, that's a strong one. Yeah, that that could benefit you in a lot of ways in life as well. Yes, because I feel like I can, um, I can be a, a million steps ahead of people. Sure. So I can make my decisions wisely. I think it just it it'll help me. I think being able to read people's minds. Mm-hmm. I'm into this. I can take advantage of people. Okay, it was dark. <laughs> Take a man. You like a villain? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm not a superhero. I'm oh, a wow. Oh, geez. I'm okay, a plot twist. Take advantage of people. Um, like I said, I could be a couple steps ahead of people. For sure. It's a lot of possibilities, man. I yeah, man, dark ones, too. And, really just, want... and I'd like, and just nosy. Yeah, man. <laughs> just nosy. Get all of people's, all people's business. business. I'm going to tell your wife that. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I... <laughs> 
I would probably go with, and this is just because I know that the time that we live in, mm. I'm still I'm still youthful enough. And this might be this might be a pipe dream. I'm only I'm only five eight on a good day, right? Mm. But I would go with uh deadly accuracy, right? Like okay. anything I could put anything where I want it to be. Mm. And then I would try out for the NBA. Mm. I can't I'm be I'd be like Steve Novak. Like I can't, I'm not athletic. Yeah. I can't any but if you get me a pick and give me the ball, it's a three pointer. My other one would be um I thought I thought about this a while ago would be from um um One Tree Hill. Okay. Just being more athletic than everybody else. Oh, like 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 uh like Nathan Scott. Being more athletic than everybody else, but taking it just I'm over just a tad bit. So you don't want to be a freak. You just want to be a little you, I, I can be. Oh, okay. But you want to be like the kid from uh um The Incredibles, where it's like you're pulling back. Yes, I just want to be limited. I'm, I'm not. Go, I'm, I'm gonna put a cap on it. Okay, I'm yeah. better than everybody else because you don't want to bring attention to yourself. That's how you end exactly. up on a, on a science table. Exactly. You know, if you jump and you touch the, you jump with the ball and you accidentally slam it on like the top of the backboard. They're like, oh, you need to be studied. Yes. You want to just be go right over the edge. Yes. So I you want to be like a little better than LeBron or a little better than Giannis. Yes. We're like, but this people can go like, oh, this dude is. But I can go. I can be way more than that. I just. I'm yeah, just but doing you dial it back. Just dial it back because I can play football. You can do anything. I can do anything. I can yeah, play yeah. baseball. I you can just be play the greatest basketball. athlete of all time. I don't even time. need accuracy to play basketball. Yeah. All I got to do is run down the court, put the ball, jump. I'm faster right. than you and stronger than everybody. Yeah, you'll be like Bo Jackson. Yes. Okay. I'll be a boxer. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, see, already that, you, you, you'd have too much notoriety. I'd be scared. People I'd be, be like, like, what the? Yeah, people would be like, he, I think he's an alien. Me, I could be, I could have like a little bit of a, like a little bit of a pouch. I could be a little bit schlubby. Yeah. And, but if you let me, if you let me let one rip, it's a bucket. Yeah. I from think, anywhere. Yeah, from anywhere. That's, that's a half that is court. insane. Yeah. I was like, people go, wait, something's not be, right. Yeah, I would be a novelty. <laughs> no, no, I would be a novelty, bro. I probably would land on a team that wouldn't win much, yeah. but I would get a nice contract, and I will be able to, you know, have a good time playing. I don't know about that. You start throwing shit behind your head I'm and not going to go cry. I'm not going to abuse the power. I'm not a villain. I wouldn't abuse the power, like, eating a, eating a snack, a sky hook from the, from the other side of the court. You get your <laughs> team, you throw it behind you and shit. <laughs> <laughs> but this motherfucker belongs on the Globe Trotters, but I'm like on a contended na- uh, championship yeah. team. Yeah, I'd be like Kick like the Mike ball in the hoop. No, oh, yeah, I'd shit. be going stupid. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Yeah, yeah. Knowing me, I start getting cocky. But no, whole team, bring the whole team through the legs. <laughs> Throw it crazy. That'd be wild. Yeah, it'd be, but it, it would be a show. <laughs> I'm the new Steph Curry. So that would be my power. I think I could you know enjoy a nice NBA career as like a, a specialist, a marksman of mm-hmm. sorts. And then also, if I want, you know, and then if I wanted to pick up a gun, darts, knives, whatever, if I wanted to defend myself, it could come in handy that way. I could put anything where I want to put lethal, it. Be lethal, man. Yeah, it'd be really lethal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, so, so December, <laughs> fingers crossed. Sure. Fingers crossed, man. You know, midnight, strike midnight, I'm going to wake up and just throw oranges here. For superpowers. Yeah, Black just, people getting the superpowers. Uh-huh. Man, yeah. people are still waiting for 40 acres in the moon, man. We ain't getting no superpowers. <laughs> We can't, we can't even get judicial justice. Like, oh, we're going to be able to fly. <laughs> okay, cool. So they should all add yeah, that. Yeah, hold you. <laughs> hold your breath. Uh, <laughs> hey, man, it's been, a, listen, it's been a wild year, man. It's been a wild year. And I mean, it's been worse for some people. It, exactly. And that's, that's, that's what keeps me going. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I, wake up, I wake up every day. Um, you know, I, I, I'm still able to work and pay my bills and everything. So, you know, there's always a bright side to be looked on. Um, when you are feeling like you know what a shitty year this has been, there's there's somebody who is having it a little rougher than you. Yeah. Um, and we were fortunate enough this year to be able to use this platform to raise a you know you know a little bit over a thousand dollars to give to some people who might need to visit a food pantry over the this season, and that felt really good to be able to do. But there's always more to be done. So if you are capable of you know making a donation to any charitable organizations, 
get out there and do so, man. You know, um, the best way to heal this country is to come together and make a change and make a difference. Yep. Um, anyway, uh, Fran, um, we do have some celebrating to do this week. Stubber's going to stay out of heart. Well, then don't eat my candy, man. Don't eat it. <laughs> Disrespect my candy like that. It's from Halloween. I mean, I don't know what you expect. <laughs> uh, let's see. It's celebration time, Fran. Let me pull this up. <clears throat> um, I don't know where we ended off last week, so if I say this name twice, you get double shout-out. Shout-out to you. Hey, first off, we're going to start with Preston H. Shout-out to you, Preston H., man. Much love and appreciation to you, and thank you for joining the Patreon. Up next, we got Shanna. Shanna. S-H-A-N-A. Shanna. Shana. I'm going to go Shana. I think it's Shana. Shana. We go Shana S. Shout out to you, Shana. She took a picture. Her profile picture is very close up on, his fa- on her face, like almost as, she, as if she was doing a, a, a face scan for um, facial recognition. Mm. It's like right there in the circle. Yeah. Well, shout she out to you. Uh, yes, she camera. accidentally took the selfie by accident <laughs> and she used it for the profile photo. But shout out yeah. to you, man. Make it, you got you to gotta be resourceful. Sometimes you, can, you take the photo and you don't know what you're going to do with it. She was like, no, nah, I'm going to use this for this random Patreon profile picture. Yeah. I respect Nobody's it. Nobody's going to see it. Yeah, you got to be, yeah, you got to recycle stuff sometimes. Yeah. Uh, up next, we got Christine K. Shout out to you, Christine K. Uh, thank you very much for joining the Patreon. You are a serial killer and we appreciate you. Up next, we got Chelsea B. Thank you, Chelsea. Shout out to you. It looks like you're wearing some kind of baby blue shirt. I'm a fan of that color. Shout out to you. Uh, up next, ooh, um, up next we got Bethan. Bethan. It looks like it should be Bethany, but there's no Y. I was about to say that. But it's no Y. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to call, we're going to go, hey, Bethan. Shout out to Bethan C. Shout out to you. Thank you for joining the Patreon. Very unique name if it's not Bethany. If your name is, oh, wait, maybe it's Beth Ann. Beth Ann? Beth Ann. Like, okay. you know, like, like Barbara Jean. Yeah. Yeah, put a hyphen there. Shout out to you, Beth Ann. Thank you. I'm going to call you Beth Ann. No matter what it is, you're Beth Ann now. It's, it's been dubbed. You are, you are knighted Beth Ann. Uh, up next, oh, man. Up next, we got Jenica B. These are some unique okay. names. Yeah, Jenica. Jenica. It's like Jennifer and Erica. Yeah. I fuck with that. Shout out to Jenica, Jenica B. That's Yeah, uh, thank you for joining the Patreon very much, and shout out to you. And lastly, this fucking piece of shit. Thinking that you can show love and appreciation to this Patreon. Get out of here. Our guess. newest. Go for it. Les. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Shout out to Les Green for joining the Patreon. You are a serial killer and a great friend. Thank you very much, my friend, for Shout joining the Patreon. Dog. Shout out to you. Um, he, uh, actually, he actually has a music video pr- premiering um, the day after this podcast comes out. So really? De- December te- 22nd. Make sure you guys go to uh, check out uh, I Am Les Green's social media profiles to check out his video for Down in the Keys. Um, it's a very you know dramatic and fun. You ever seen it? I've seen skips of it. Okay. You know, it's you know he, he's he sent me some you know some some shots from it, some scenes, and right. he's you know flailing around in water and being all dramatic. It wow. almost reminds me of the Baby Boy video with uh, Beyonce and Sean Paul. But uh, rockabilly music. So uh, shout out to Les and shout out to everybody who joined our Patreon and shout out to everybody who just listens in general. We appreciate all of you and thank you very much for the support. Um, Fran, I don't, do we have anything else we need to cover now? Uh, no. Okay. Oh, well, what we're gonna do is. Oh, no, never mind. Well, no, actually, no. Before we go, I just want to give a shout out to the Bay Area one time. Uh, the versus. Uh, it was E40 versus Too Short. I had a great time enjoying that. Uh, I am not from the Bay, but uh, I've spent uh, a lot of my life in Las Vegas, and Las Vegas is where Oakland Oakland gangsters go to retire, so everybody in Las Vegas wants to be from the Bay, and um, so I've always had a lot of love for, like, you know, uh, the D-Lo era and, you know, uh, too, too Short and E40 and, and, and uh, Mac Dre and all that kind of stuff, so I really had a good time enjoying those two dudes celebrate the Bay and let motherfuckers know that a lot of the game that we got 
comes from the Bay Area. So shout out to E40 and shout out to Too Short and shout out to anybody who listens from the Bay. You know, um, you know, stand up. Much appreciation for the sauce that we have uh, gotten. You know, Jesus Christ said dreads, so shake them. Anyway, we're going to uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into some fucked up shit. So stick around. All right, it's my turn to go first this week. <clears throat> so my affirmative murder this week is about a group that's called Move. Ah, uh, okay. Have you heard about this? Oh, yes, I have. We've okay. discussed this a couple of times. We did? Yeah, yeah. Um, Move in Philly, right? Yep. Yeah. So Move is a black, militant, um, anarcho-primitivist group founded in 1972 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania by John Africa, who was born Vincent Lefert. The name styled in all capital letters is not an acronym. The group lived in um, a communal setting in West Philadelphia, abiding by philosophies of anarcho-primitivism, which is a political um, ideology that advocates a return to non-civilized way through the deindustrialization. Mm-hmm. The group combined revolutionary ideology similar to that of the Black Panthers, which worked for animal rights. So the group name MOVE, um, again, it's not an acronym. Mm -hmm. John Africa chose a name to say what they intended to do. Members intend to be active because they say everything that's alive moves. If it didn't, it would be stagnant or dead. I mean, that is a fact, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, sure, yeah. Somebody goes obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when members greet each other, when members greet each other, they say on the move. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if it's like, what's up? Well, you know, yeah, also it's like the seventies. So, you know, they put some sauce on, on the move, right on. on. The move. Hey, on the move, brother. <laughs> right on the move. Fist pump. Yeah. You know, move. they got the Afro and everything. We're not, we, we're looking at it through 2020 goggles. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, on, yeah. you know, people, you know, people right on is all that same type of stuff yeah. on the move. So we, um, when founded in 1972, the group was originally called the Christian Movement for Life. Its founder, John Africa, was was um, functionally illiterate. Okay. He dedicated his thoughts to Donald Glassy, a social worker from the University of Pennsylvania, and created what 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 he called the guidelines as the basis of communal group of the communal group. Mm-hmm. Africa um, and his mostly African um, American fe- followers wore their hair in dreadlocks, so all of them had mm-hmm. the same hairstyle. As popularized by the Caribbean Rastafari movement, Moved advocated a radical um, form of green politics and the return of hunter-gatherer society, while stating their opposition to science, medicine, and technology. Also, keep in mind for people listening, this is all taking place in Western Philadelphia, in West Side Philadelphia. Yeah. So this idea of you know, we're going to go back to the living off the land and everything. Yeah. They're living in like a, a block of row homes. Like <laughs> we're going to hunt animals. Yeah. Like them. there's concrete everywhere and street <laughs> lamps. There's no, you know, woods or anything. Yeah, yeah. This is a crazy philosophy to, to adapt in a city. Yep. They identified as deeply religious and advocate for life. Move members believe that as all living beings are dependent, their lives should be treated and as equally important. They advocate for justice that is not always based within institutions. Move members believe that for something to be just, it must be just for all living creatures. As John Africa had done, had done, his followers changed their surnames to Africa to show their loyalty or you know, their commitment to what they regarded as their mother um, continent. Mm-hmm. So all of them had changed their last name, you know, be Fran Africa and Alvin Africa. Yeah. So in twenty eight, in, um, in a twenty eighteen article uh, about the group, Ed Pillington 
The Guardian described their political views as a strange fusion of black power and flower power. So flower power was just like something like hippies. Sep- yeah, in the seventies was hippies. Mm-hmm. Um, so the group which that- is which is. It's a form of nonviolence, though, right? Yeah, yes, yes. It's it's very nonviolent. It's very you know about love and 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 everything. Which you know, I'm not saying the Black Panther Party was not that. They were looking for love, love and liberation and freedom of Black people in this country under yeah. an oppressive government. But those two ideologies probably are like you know you know like gas and like you know like oil and water because it's like well I'm not going to let somebody just. Actually, no, I take it back. Martin Luther King probably was like a, I would say he was a, a combination of both some flower power, but, you know, black power. organization and black power and, and a little bit of, you know, militant. Yeah, nonviolent. Yeah, nonviolent. Yeah. Getting, matter of fact, it was like getting hit with a brick. That's like an accomplishment. It was like, no, we're going to use our bodies as defense, yeah. which I mean, I don't know. You hit me over there with a brick. We got an issue. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I whenever I see those videos, I, I commend that whole anybody, yeah. you know, John Lewis, all those people that were on that bridge in Selma. It's like they were like actively not fighting back. Like, no, yeah. that's not Get spray water hoses and stuff. There's so that much restraint and, yeah. and, and power in that. Uh, so the group that formed in the early 1990s melded the revolutionary ideology of the Black Panthers with the nature and animal loving communi- um, communi- communalism and 1960s hippies, of 1960s hippies. You might characterize them as black liberationists come eco-warriors. He noted that the group also functioned as an animal rights um, advocacy organization. He quoted member um, Janine Africa, who wrote to him from prison, we demonstrated against puppy mills, zoos, circuses, and any form of enslavement of animals. What the fuck is a puppy mill? Where they breed puppies. Oh, Oh, I thought it was like they like kill them or something. Cook them or something. Yeah, I, was, I don't know. Look it up. Maybe I puppy. thought I would think they just breed puppies. <clears throat> keep keep going. Okay, we demonstrated. Uh, we demonstrated against the three the three mile island and industrial pollution. We demonstrated against police brutality, and we did so uncompromisingly. S- slavery never ended; it was just disguised. Mm. Well, that's yeah. That's, that's did you fair. find it out yet? Yes, well, your statement is true, but also a puppy mill is an inhumane, high-volume dog breeding facility that churns out puppies for profit. Ignoring the needs of the pups and their mothers, dogs from puppy mills are often sick and um, unsocialized. Puppy mills commonly sell through the internet sales, uh, online classified ads, flea markets, and pet stores. Mm. They don't have puppy mills now, I would assume, right? Um, When I I typed in puppy mill, the first thing that came up was puppy mill near me, so... I don't. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Maybe the definition of a puppy of a puppy mill has changed. Yeah. Um, mm. Actually, no. My computer just froze because I typed that in. So I, wow. yeah, I, right. they might, I might be on a list now. Maybe they might come I'm, in gonna, here. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna close out the screen. I'm gonna close that out, and you continue your story. <laughs> uh, so John Africa and the Move members lived in um, a commune in a house owned by Glassy, and like pa- in a, in a row homes. Yes, row homes, and Palatine Village section of the West Philadelphia. This is insane. As act- as activists, they staged bullhorn amplified, prof- uh, profanity laced demonstrations against institutions they all that they opposed, such as zoos, and and speakers who and speakers whose views they opposed. Move activists were scrutinized by law enforcement authorities, particularly under the administration of Mayor Frank Frank Rizzo. Um, a former who was a former police commissioner known for his hard line against um activist groups. Um, in 1977, in response to the series of complaints made by the neighbors, uh, according to the police accounts, 
of the MOVE members living in a, the Palton, at the Palton Village house at 311 North 33rd Street. The police under Mayor Frank Rizzo. Um, so Frank Rizzo was was an American police officer and politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, he served as Philadelphia Police Commissioner from 1960 to 1971 and Mayor of Philadelphia from 1972 to 1980. And as a mayor, Rizzo was a strong opponent of desegregation um, of Philadelphia schools and prevented the construction of public housing in the majority white neighborhoods. Sounds like a super cool dude. Yeah. And while running for the third term, Rizzo um, urged supporters to vote white. During his tenure as police commissioner and mayor, the the Philadelphia Police Department engaged in patterns of police brutality, um, intimidation, harassment, and disregard of the constitutional rights. This was back in the good old days where you could just say the quiet part out loud. Vote white. Yep. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, so in particular toward, in particular toward the African-American community, of course. Yeah. But also uh, like, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're going to go into it more, but I just also want to make it clear, like the neighbors, <laughs> the neighbors hated these people. Like I, I I'm yeah. sure they were, they had, I'm sure they, their cause was righteous and everything, but imagine living in, I don't know, you know, people, but different regions are set up different, but you know, in on all along the East coast of the country, there's, you know, row homes, uh, uh they're called brownstones and others, other cities and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a neighbor on each side of you, a neighbor on that side of that person, all the way down. They're all together. There's no single family homes in some of these neighborhoods. It's like, they're all just stacked up next to each other. So this, these people with these communal ideas, you know, so there's 50 people in this house and there's a neighbor on the left of you and a neighbor on the right of you. You come outside yeah. of your house, you're on a bullhorn screaming about zoos and you know how you're going to defeat the man and everything like that. Yeah. They, the house was apparently incredibly sloppy. And yeah, that, yeah it was, I'll like, get to that. Yeah. 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 It's just, I just wanted to make sure that people understand like these people have the ideology of like a militia in South Dakota but they, it's like if they, they lived in Brooklyn. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so um, uh, obtained a court order demanding MOVE members vacate. MOVE members agreed to vacate and surrender their weapons if the police um, released their members who were held in, jail, in city jails. Now, some of the pictures that they have, if you guys want to look them up, I mean, they were, like, standing in front of the pro- house, like, with um, weapons. <laughs> like, guarding the yeah. house. <laughs> Uh, which is wild. And, it's super and, and, wild. It's crazy. So nearly a year later, police came to a standoff with members of the community who had not left. When the police attempted to enter the house, shooting erupted. Police, Philadelphia Police Department Officer James J. Ramp was killed by a shot to the back of the neck. 16, officers, 16 police officers and firefighters were also injured in the firefight. Move representatives claimed that he was, that he was facing the house at the time and they denied Moo's responsibility for his death, insisting that he was killed by, um, he was killed by fire from police from fellow police officers. Prosecutors alleged that alleged that Move members fired the fatal shot and changed Sim Africa and charged Sims Africa, um, and other eight and other eight with collective responsibility for his death. Now, even if they didn't do it. They was definitely gonna get charged for this either way. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> do you have anything like, in there about like what they did to the house? What do you mean? Well, they just the way they had they, it was so reinf- like the police couldn't get into the house. It was so it was so reinforced. Yeah, and they had all these windows boarded yeah. up and everything. It, they were they were prepared for this. Like they were they were ready for this. Yes. Um. Yeah. So they would. It could, that dude could have possibly been killed by a fellow police officer. Sure, but it was, was a shootout. It was going to get. It was. We're it was here. You, it was we're you. here because of you guys. Yes. So they're definitely gonna put that away. And also, you know, 
you're you're a militia crazy group you know whatever and we're the police so our story holds more weight than yours so whatever even if i did i matter of fact i'm the cop that shot him it was you yeah you know it doesn't matter i didn't do it it was you you did it that part that part would have been muted yeah for sure (laughs) absolutely you hear everything before that and after that so eyewitnesses, however, gave accounts suggesting that the shot may have come may have come from the um, the opposite direction to the basement, raising the possibility that Ramp was accidentally um, shot by police shot by police fire. Move members continued to insist that they had no workable guns in the house at the time of this at the time of this this firefight. Mm. Several months earlier in May 1978. So they're saying so their their defense is like this wasn't a shootout. They just were shooting at us. Yeah. Okay. Like we had guns, but they, they, they didn't they, work. They wasn't work. Okay. They wasn't operable at the time. So several guns. Um. Yeah. So several. So several months earlier in May 1978, several guns. Most of them they said didn't work. Uh-huh. Had been handed over to the police at the move house. However, prosecutors at the trial of the move of the move nine told the jury that at the time of the August um firefight, there had been functioning firearms in the house. The standoff lasted about an hour before move members began to surrender. You said move members said this? Said what? That there that there were guns that worked or the police are saying the this? The police said this. At the trial? Yeah. Okay, okay. So the nine move members charged with third-degree murder for Ramp's death became known as the Move Nine. Mm-hmm. Each was sentenced to a maximum of 100 years in prison. 100 years? Yeah. They were Chuck, Dilbert, Eddie, Janet, Janine, Merle, Michael, Phil, and Debbie Africa. In 1988, at the age of 47, Merle Africa died in prison. Mm. Seven of the surviving eight members first became eligible for eligible for parole in the spring of 2008, but they were denied. Parole hearings for each of these prisoners were um, to be held yearly uh, from that time. In 2015, at, at the age of 59, Phil Africa died in prison. Mm. The first of the move nine to be released was Debbie Sims Africa on June 16, 2018. Debbie Sims Africa was 22 when sentenced. When released on parole and reunited with her 39-year-old son, Michael Davis, um, Africa Jr. He was in the house? Uh, there were kids in the house. He wasn't. He was, he was, I'm about to mention it, but okay. remind me of Michael J. Davis at the end, because I got something to say about him. Michael J. Davis? My, I mean, so Michael Davis, Africa Jr. Michael, okay, got it. Um, yeah, so she's re- reunited with her 39-year-old son, Michael Davis, Africa Jr. She gave birth to him a month after she was in prison. Mm. And he was taken from her a week later. Um. Yeah, so he was born in prison, and he in, um, like Tupac. She was, yeah, yep. So the release of Debbie Sims Africa renewed attention on the move of members and those Black Panthers who remained imprisoned in the U.S. from the period of 1960s to the 1970s. There were at least 25 still in prison as of June 2018. And on October 23rd, 2018, Michael Davis Africa, the husband of Debbie Sims Africa, was released on parole. Okay. In May 2019, Janine and Janet um, Africa were released on parole after 41 years of imprisonment. On June 21st, 2019, Eddie Godman Africa was released on parole. Um, Dilbert or Africa was granted parole on December 20th, 2019 and released January 18th of 2020. The last of the move nine either to be paroled or to die behind bars was Chuck Sims Africa, who was released on parole on February 7th, 2020 after 41 years of imprisonment. And Dilbert or Africa died of cancer at home on June 16th, 2020. Mm. So he was, he, um, he got out December. Yeah. And then he got out January, 2018. And died and like died six months later. Yeah. So in 1981, move relocated to, <laughs> to a row house in 6221 Osage Avenue in the Combs Creek area of West Philadelphia. 
Neighbors complained to the city. What what if they saw them move in and was like, oh shit. Yeah. They already knew. They already knew. Yeah, these people are out. Oh yeah. And saw Philly, 20 people like, oh, here Philly, we go with these Philly's, a, Philly's not that big. These people definitely have a reputation and they probably moved in, you know, 15 deep. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and again, into a, into a row home. Yep. And there's parts of Pennsylvania that are absolutely like vast and you could get land. And, yeah. You know, they probably aren't in a financial position to do that. So it's this is this weird combination of like, you know, um, black people not having access to resources to make their ideas manifest the way they want them to. It's like, we're, I mean, look, we're poor, we're black. This is this is what we can afford. But we still have the ideology of like a compound and shooting deer with bow and arrows. And like, there's no deer here, man. Yeah. And like you live in West Philly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they moved into... Um a row house in West Philadelphia. Neighbors complained to the city for years about trash around their building, confrontations with neighbors, and bullhorn <laughs> announcements of sometimes obscene political messages by move members. It's like you just wake up at like three in the morning, you just yeah. hear somebody outside. The pig will not take us all down, brothers. And it's like, shut up. Right. We are not on your side. Like it's just a it's just a crazy thing to come into a neighborhood with such a bullhorn. With a, with such a like a loud message like not just playing loud music like being outside and chastising people like somebody walking into their house is like do you think the man is coming for you sisters like i just came from the grocery store i'm not i don't want to get involved in this can yeah. you please pick up this trash and shit everywhere come on man please yeah so the police obtained arrest warrants in 1985 charging four move occupants with crimes including parole violations contempt um contempt of court illegal possessions of firearms and making terror terrorist threats Mayor Wilson Good and Police Commissioner George J. Somber classified MOVE as a terrorist organization. Police um, evacuated residents of the area from um, their neighborhood prior to this to their action. So just to just to kind of clarify the timeline of things that's going on, mm -hmm. they lived in another house. Yep. That house got into a shootout. Yep. And then any the surviving people from that situation yep. now absolutely you know feeling dignified i mean feeling justified in their feelings and enraged by what happened they were attacked by these police officers now moved to osage avenue in the 80s mm -hmm. now the children of those people in prison yep. a little bit more you know uh radicalized a little bit more angry a little bit louder now living on osage and yep. they're like the house is trash and everything like that and now the police are coming after this group but they remember them from that incident, so now they're categorizing them as terrorists. Yep. Okay, got it, got yeah. it, got it. Um, so residents were told that they would be able to return to their homes after a 24-hour period. Mm -hmm. Now, so they moved into this new neighborhood. They have an arrest warrant. Now they tell them, the police are telling their neighbors in the neighborhood, hey, y'all got to evacuate because shit's about to go down. Right. Y'all can't come back in a couple of days. So on Monday, May 13, 1985, nearly 500 police officers, 500 police mm -hmm. officers, along with the city manager, Leo Brooks, arrived in force and attempted to clear the building and, um, and execute the arrest warrants. Nearby houses were evacuated. Water and electricity were shut off mm -hmm. in order to force MOVE members out of the house. Yep. Commissioner Samba read a long speech addressed to MOVE members that stated, with attention MOVE, this is America. You have to abide by the laws of the United States. When the move members, um, when the move members did not respond, the police decided to forcibly remove the 13 members from the house, which consisted um, of eight adults and six children. There was an armed standoff with police who lobbed tear gas canisters at the building. The move members fired at them and a 90 minute gunfire ensued. So they, these, these move members, 
This was a shootout. This was a shootout. Okay. Now, I just want to say, just to clarify things, I think that any of the stuff that I was saying was about this incident. Okay. I wasn't familiar with the incident the, the where there might not have been actual guns and everything like that. Yeah. So it's interesting to see the police had an incident, that one of theirs died, mm-hmm. and then the move had an incident, all these people got arrested, probably yeah. some people might, might have got pretty badly hurt. And so now this is the next generation of police that are like, we're not losing one of ours today, so we're coming yeah. deep. And then this next generation of move people who are like, they're not fucking coming in here and taking us out of here like they did our parents. Yep. So that's it's very it's a really interesting like cycle. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. And which one um and which one officer was bruised by um bruised in the back by gunfire? Guessing he had a bulletproof vest on and getting hit. Yeah, bruised in the back. Yeah, lucky. Yeah. So police used more than ten thousand rounds of ammunition oh, before geez. Commissioner Somber ordered the ordered that the compound be bombed. From a Pennsylvania State Police <laughs> helicopter, Philadelphia Police Department Lieutenant Frank Powell proceeded to drop two one pound bombs, um, which of the police referred to as um to as an entry device yeah. made by yeah. F- yeah. Made, made of FBI supplied Tovex. So nice, to- it's nice word trickery there. Yeah. So Tovex is a water gel explosive composed of composed of ammunition nitrate and methylaminium methylaminium mm. nitrate that has several advantages over traditional dynamite. Doesn't sound including nice. including lower toxicity and safer manufactured manufactured transport and storage. It has thus almost entirely replaced dynamite. So just Give a couple of facts about uh, more, more, more effective in uh, destroying things. Exactly. What interesting double speak. What they call it? An impact device? <laughs> an entry device. An entry device. Yes. Yeah. This is an entry device. We blow up half of the fucking house. Yeah. So we can get in there. Is a bullet also an entry device? <laughs> It'll enter you. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. So Tovex is uh is um a dynamite substitute mm-hmm. targeting a um a cubicle on the roof of the house. The ensuing the ensuing fire killed eleven of the people in the house. John, John Africa, and five other adults and five children aged seventeen to thirteen. Now the police dropped a bomb. Just to be clear, because I know you said some stuff about you know this is the dynamite better than that. Di- it was a bomb. It was a bomb, and the police dropped a bomb on a neighborhood in America. On a neighborhood in America, and John Africa was the the, the leader of this this move movement. Right, he was killed in this bomb explosive accident. Mm-hmm. Also, five other adults. And five children from 17 to 13. Yeah. yeah. So again, they dropped a bomb in a neighborhood in West Philadelphia. Yeah. We talked about this when you did the thing about the guy that made the um the bulldozer, the killer bulldozer. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, so the fire spread and eventually destroyed approximately 65, 65 nearby houses. Yeah. An uh, entry device. An entry device. I have a picture. I'll send it to you. That's a city block. The whole block. Yeah, that's a city was block. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> like, as a matter of fact, there was an explosion. Like, I, I need to look into that. There was an explosion here in Baltimore probably about five yeah, months yeah, ago, yeah, yeah. and that was crazy. Five people, ago? Shit. yeah, people said they felt that. Yeah, and that blew up like five like, houses, like like, a, like a, a house, a house a, yeah, like a house and the house next to it, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then some windows got shattered on the next street. Yeah, this blew up how many houses? Sixty five houses. That's insane. That's that's a that's a bomb. An entry device. That is a war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's insane. <laughs> I mean that. That's insane. My God. So now the so now one listen for whatever you want to say about what the move organization was doing, you you don't drop a bomb in America, but also you've now destroyed sixty four other people's yes. livelihoods. Their houses are gone. You know I'm I don't know their socioeconomic status, but I don't know if they can just go okay. Well, I'll just build another house. But did they what? Now 
when they when I read the part when they made the other neighbors evacuate, they knew what they, they were going to do. So you 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 think why that, else would you evacuate them? I mean, at the very least, they thought they were going to shoot up the whole block. But that wide of a range, though. I think they I think they had an idea of what they were going to do. At the very least, was, they, at I the very hope. least, they were like, "We're coming through this block five hundred deep, and I don't want to accidentally shoot some kid riding a bicycle. So just get everybody out of here who doesn't live at the move house because we're about to fuck shit up." I don't think they came there. Sixty-five houses, though. I don't think that's well, a couple blocks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think they came there thinking like, um, "Yeah, we're going to peacefully get them out of here and everything," but we just want to get everybody out of here, you know, just to kind of limit and mitigate damage. No, I think they were that's like, nuts, I think here's what I'll say. I think maybe they went there like, look, we're going to try to talk to him for like 10 minutes. And if that doesn't go that way, we're going to fucking light this place up. A bomb. And plan B, if we can't get them out of the fucking house, we're going to drop a bomb on them. A bomb. Yeah. The tear gas method, I think, was... I don't think a bomb call is like a spur of the moment thing. The bomb has to already be loaded up, ready to get on the helicopter. It was already... So that was on standby. I think the bomb was on standby, and they tried whatever, and they started shooting and couldn't get into the house or whatever the situation was. They cut the power off. Sounds like this was a long standoff. And then after however many hours, they go, you know what, man? Fuck this, man. Bring in Betsy. And they dropped a fucking bomb in the United States of America on a, on a city block. That's insane. But I haven't heard of this tale brought up a while ago until mm-hmm. I heard it, an ad of it on a podcast. Yeah. And I was like, I was like what? wait, what? Well, and I didn't even hear yeah. this part. I yeah. heard the other part. About the, the whole the first, movement, the, just the just yeah. general, the whole mm-hmm. movement. Yeah. Until you, you do your research and do your research. It's like, they dropped a what? They dropped on a bomb. what? They dropped a bomb on a city block, man. And also, on top of all of that, no matter, you know, what the case is of whatever happened, I think it's insane that all these people have been out on parole and the climate that we're in, and there's been no documentary, Not, no interviews. Well, no, I'll get to that later. Okay, that okay. Later. You might already know, but I'll, 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 I'll speak on that later. Okay. After I'm finished. Um, so, yeah. So... Um, they dropped the bomb on the building. Um, after the fire broke out, officials say that they feared the move would shoot at the firefighters, so um, so they held them back, which I think is complete no. bullshit. They pulled them out because they were going to drop the bomb. No, 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 no. They talking about after the fire. After oh, this fire, okay. they was like, oh, okay. we didn't, we didn't want them shooting at our firefighters, so we pulled them back to let everything burn. That everything, yeah, burn. no, no, for sure, no. They wanted to make sure, sure everybody was done. They wanted, to, yes, no help. You get no help. You get no public services. No. Suffer. They didn't help them. No, I ain't trying to hear that. That's yeah. bullshit. So Good later testified at the 1996 trial that he had ordered the fire to be put out after the bunker had burned. Somber said he received he received the order, but the fire commissioner testified that he did not receive the order. Mm. Ramon Africa, one of the two moved survivors from the house, said that the police fired, um, the police fired uh, at those trying to escape. After the bomb went off. After, after they blew up everything. I believe that. They treated them like zombies. What? So we're going to blow the fucking house up, and anybody that comes out of the house, we're going to shoot them. She survived and, the bomb. And I, this this is the kind of thing that happens where you, you're not surprised when, you know, you know you get these, these these black militant groups that go, this was an extermination. Yep. Like, they, they were not, they were like, these people keep moving from neighborhood to neighborhood. We keep having problems with them. We had the same thing happen like six, seven, yeah, however we, many we, years we ago. We're just going to get rid of them. Yep. They're not going to be a problem anymore. We're going we're gonna to evacuate this city block. Tell these, all these people who are, you know, middle class to lower middle class probably, hey, we're going to get you out of here for a couple of days, go find somewhere else to stay. And then you can come back once we get them out of here. And then they came back to their neighborhood being decimated. Yeah. You know, all in, in the, in what seems like the goal was to exterminate move. Yeah. But how did they survive? Who? The police. 
They got the word that the bomb was coming, man. That came through on the walkie-talkie. You know that. So they 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 were hey, man. There? We're look, man. The helicopter's coming. Bail out. Shit. Move, move the car. You know, sixty-seven houses down. <laughs> this, you know, the same way. You know, this they knew every. They had it all. Uh, you know, they had the parameters figured out, and they get a, get a get a nice block away. They probably thought they was leaving. Oh, they going. They the police yeah, won. Leaving. Oh, that's that, yeah. It was probably a little bit of a celebration in there, and then they dropped a fucking bomb on them. Mm. Um. So, good appointed an investigation investigative commission called the Philadelphia Special Investigation Commission. Um, which was AKA the move commission chaired by William H. Brown, the third Samba resigned on November, 1985 in speech of the following in a speech of the following year said that he was, he was made a surrogate by good. The move commissioner issued its report on March, on March 6, 1986. The report denounced the actions of the city government mm-hmm. stating that dropping a bomb on an occupied row house was excessive. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> it was a little bit excessive. Follow, like how does how does that insane, man. how does that um that decision make it down to to the to the person that makes the decision go hey let's well do it. you can tell like it, it's a it's a it's a system one they have an incident right so I think the I think that the nail in the coffin for the move for the move organization at least this iteration in this house was them being deemed a terrorist organization right so they already had this one incident. So you so there's already they, there's no but, peace talks coming. Okay, now what's what's the what is the the complete definition of a terrorist of of uh, of being a terrorist threat? A terrorist threat or being a terrorist? As being a terrorist, being a terrorist. A terrorist. Let's see. I'll tell you right now. A person who uses unlawful violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of a political aim. Okay. So they wanted to have things happen, and yeah. they were willing to do whatever necessary to make that happen, and that's what they were deemed as. By the but, government, but what? So but that's they why they pull they up. Didn't do anything. That's why allegedly, allegedly. I mean, I'm assuming that it's you know can be corroborated by the people that were in that survived. The, the police come and they go. Attention, move. This is the United States. You have to follow the laws of the United States. So clearly, they probably weren't paying taxes. You know, they were probably doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Not paying taxes. Not you know following just everyday rules. Uh, being unlawfully assembling on the streets. Yeah, and everything. I mean, they could have done. They could have done that and got away with it. But until people start complaining. Well, also, t- also in. six years before this, they got into a shootout with police. So yeah. already the police are showing up. They have a history. But they wasn't terrorists then, though. They weren't, but now, but that incident is what right. got them labeled as terrorists. So when round two comes along, you don't get the same, you know, peace talks in the same amount of time as you did the first time around. Now they're, all, they're coming right in like, these are terrorists, they're dangerous, they had guns, whether or not that was true. But this is the story that these, this next generation of police are com- going, going into this believing, right? Yeah, I get that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying... I'm, you know, for whatever he was doing, but I'm trying to be like a devil's advocate a little bit. Oh, no, Just, I'm playing devil's advocate as well, but because trying, no matter like, what they were doing, right. you don't drop a bomb on people. Right, but it's like they got that label of being a terrorist sure. from a police officer that got killed, but th- we don't even know de- definitely that they they killed that. Oh, they know officer. definitely. It doesn't matter nothing about what you're talking about. <laughs> they killed the police officer. You got to watch, tri- you gotta, you gotta, you gotta watch, you gotta watch Trial 4 on, uh, on Netflix. Uh, you know, that dude... That dude in in uh, Massachusetts or wherever he was, mm-hmm. even when they let him out, the, the 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 his lawyer did everything possible to clear his name. And on the on the 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 prosecutor said, you know, we still believe that he's guilty, but there was some stuff that went wrong. So on a technicality, we have to let him out. But we absolutely believe that this guy did it. Even after he's cleared and walks out of the prison, they are saying every police officer who was in that documentary was like, no, nah, he definitely did it. As a free, he's a free man, and they're like, no. Nope. We weren't wrong. We didn't. No, 
We didn't mess up. We probably have to say that. You exactly. That's what I'm saying. So they're <laughs> yeah. like, no, he they move killed Davis, yeah. Officer Davis. Yeah. So it, it doesn't matter about what you're saying about you know the guns didn't work and they're saying our guns we didn't shoot any guns back and no we got into a shootout with move and one of our officers died. That's the story. Period. So when they show up to He's round two, the house we got shot in the back of the neck. When they show up for round two, that's what they're coming in with the idea of. Hey, man, these people are dangerous. They yeah. kill police officers. So um, nobody needs nobody makes it out of this. A bomb, though? Oh, the, a bomb is crazy. A shootout would have been crazy. <laughs> Everything about, but my whole point is, this only ends crazy. Bomb or not, they were going to, you know, a guy was going to, John Africa, whoever was going to come out, hands up. He's got a gun, you know, and oh, they was going to light him. Everybody up. was dying. Yeah, that yeah. that was clearly the objective in this in this uh, operation to come five hundred deep with all these guns and everything. And then yeah. Plan B is clearly already in the works. All they had to do was say, you know, hey, uh, you know, uh, red team go, and then the helicopter is like, okay, but it's, it's my, our time, and then they back issue, off. They back off and they blow the whole block. Up. My issue is, how was that an option? How was bombing? An- <laughs> A row house, an option. You know what it is? It, it 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 is a it is an iteration on you ask forgiveness and not permission. I guarantee that a police department will never do this again, but they did it, moved on, and and got away with it. I'm sure no police officers, no the 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 the, the chief of police, the mayor, you know, they might have gotten a little bit of a like, I'm gonna step down and you know, I'm not gonna run again. But nobody went to prison. Nobody nobody was, you know, reprimanded in any kind of yeah, severe because, way. Because thousands of people thousands of people wasn't killed. Yeah. If this was if that whole if they didn't clear that whole block, oh yeah, no. This would have been different. This 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 this, this would have been, been, been a national atrocity. Yes. Which I still believe this is a national is. atrocity because <laughs> regardless of if it was nine people, eleven people, whatever, a a government entity Dropped a bomb on civilians and on United States soil. That is, that's insane. You've never heard of that. That dude in Colorado was going through the city with a bulldozer and all this kind of crazy shit, and they probably thought about it. He did more damage in that town than the move did at all. They might have been a nuisance. They might have been labeled a terrorist organization. Maybe they feared of what they could be capable of. Yeah. And that's what happened. I think that they really just feared of their capability. Like, let's snuff this out now because they might be small now, but they're growing. We've already had an incident with them where a police officer died. They're terrorists, and we're going to snuff them out. I don't, I don't see the evidence there to see that, oh, they are, they are that dangerous. Oh, at all. Especially, and the thing is, this is why I say, you know, it's like this twisted idea of ask uh, permission, not forgiveness. You go look at Minnesota, and they were about to, it was a militia, about to kidnap the governor of, of Minnesota and give her a trial in the woods. They didn't come in through and drop bombs on those people. Those people were at the Capitol building with bulletproof vests on, yeah. assault weapons, and they had a plan to kidnap a government official and have a trial. What do you think happens if she, the, a, a sham trial? What do you think they were going to be like, you know what, we reviewed all the evidence and everything, Gretchen Whitmer, and you're not guilty. No. No, they were going to fucking have a trial, find her guilty, and, and then do God knows what to yeah. that woman. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, there's just, it's just, it's interesting what a terrorist label one is, what's deemed a terrorist organization and how it's treated. Yeah. Especially going off of this incident. Right. And this incident was, you know, 30 plus years ago, but it happened. Yeah. And we've had incidences of other terroristic domestic terrorist organizations that have been discovered. KKK, all these other militias that have popped up in the last few years have popped up. And uh, I've heard no stories of, oh, yeah, the police went through and they just murdered everybody at the thing. You know, you heard about it at Waco 
you know, that was probably the last time I heard of something like that with um, David Koresh. He kind of had a, a cult-like thing going, mm-hmm. and the ATF went up there, and, and they shot everybody, right? But it, it, though, it doesn't— I haven't—I you know. haven't, didn't—I legit didn't hear about this. Oh, yeah, Waco's, a, uh, Waco's an incredibly <laughs> famous story, and there's people that are alive, went to prison, and survived, and they're out on parole, and there's no, like, Netflix trailer for, you know, uh, the Move 9. Wait, was that the—was that the—what um, you just talking about? Was that the island— was no, it was like, in Texas. Oh, okay. It was Waco, no, Texas. Okay. It was David Koresh, and he had this. It was it's it's a cult, but they went through and murdered everybody. They wouldn't deem themselves a cult. They would deem themselves as some kind of movement for Christ or whatever. Well, all you know, of them do that. All of them do that. So they didn't label themselves a cult. Neither I wouldn't move. Sounds sounds like more of a political movement. It's a cult. The, yeah. Okay. Once I start changing your names, to everybody has the same. Yeah. Name. Okay. Then so it's cult like, right? Yeah. And uh, the uh, two incidences I've heard of, you know, uh, violence on American soil, and there's probably more, but these are the two ones that I know the most is the Waco, which was in Texas, and they came through and they shot everybody, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the compound went up in flames and all that kind of stuff. And then move in, in Philadelphia, and if anybody's ever been to Philadelphia, it's so, it's a beautiful city, but it's so tight. Like, it, every, I, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever seen a single-family home riding around Philadelphia. Now, I'm riding through the city and, like, the museum part, so there's a bunch of brownstones and townhomes and yeah. everything like that. But it's very compact. And I imagine the city blocks look like how Baltimore city blocks look. You know, yeah. I, when you say 65 houses, that's a, you know, you go, that's a couple blocks. It's like, no, it's probably a block. It is. You know, because it's like, you know, one block, even a half a block, it might be 30 houses on there. Because it's like, boom, boom, boom. They're all, you know, it's all stacked up on each other. So really, 65 houses is probably like a little bit over a block, a little bit over a half a block. It's probably not that much space. Yeah. But 65 houses is 65 lives, 65 livelihoods, yeah. 65 families. Just you know? for people that don't know. If you haven't seen the photo, it's not like the house, the house that was blew up and it was like just the top of the roof was gone. It's gone. It, the yeah. whole house, it, the, all the house is gone. Uh, it's, sh- <laughs> it's, just, it's just rubble. They leveled a city block. Wow. Because they feared the they feared the future of this political cult movement, whatever you want to call it. Right. And again, I think you said something about you might have some facts on that after. But again, I'm, I, I've seen like PBS documentaries of this from years ago, but in this time, this climate that we're in, you don't sit down with these people. I'm not asking, I'm not saying make a biased, you know, film from these people's angles. I'm saying, go talk to the police, go talk to the move nine, go talk to, you know, the mayor at the time and put together a, this is a, this is an event that happened in American history. A bomb was dropped on a, a city block in the United States and there's no, you know, quintessential documentary to give these people, to give the American public the information about this. That's crazy to me. Yeah. It's almost like it's being silenced. Yeah. You know, that this isn't national public information that like everybody doesn't go that everybody doesn't go. Yeah. You remember move. That's not that's not just like a thing. People remember, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, the hail bop cult. People remember Waco. People remember, you know, Bernie Getz and the train uh, 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 assaults and all that kind of stuff. And this was um, uh, a, a, a bomb was dropped on people. Kids died. Yeah. And 65 homes were destroyed. So that's that. also on top of that, there's 60 families that can go, that's yeah, nothing. man, we had to move. Yeah. There's all kind of people. There's all kind of people to go talk to out there. Yep. And there's no like six part move documentary. At least not one that's getting any kind of notoriety. Yeah. That's crazy to me. This isn't this is an insane story. That's why we're here. Yeah. Uh, OK, so I'm just the uh, city government stated that the dropping a bomb on an occupied rural home was excessive. Following the release of the of the report, um, Good made a formal uh, public apology. No one from the city government was criminally charged in the attack. 
The only surviving adult move member, Ramona Africa, was charged and convicted on charges of rioting and conspiracy. Mm. She served seven years in prison. In 1996, a federal jury ordered ordered the city um, to pay a $1.5 million civil suit judgment to survivor Ramona Africa and the relatives of two people killed in the bombing. The jury had found that the city used excessive force and violated the members' constitutional constitutional protection against unreasonable search and seizure. In 1985, Philadelphia was um, given the nickname the city that bombed itself. In 2005, federal judge. But I tell you what, they don't call. You don't. I've never. I've heard never that. heard that. They got I rid of that. Oh, they got rid of that real quick. The I city of brotherly thing. love came right. They were like, I've "No, we don't want. That. That's not happening here. We're not getting dubbed that." Never heard that. Um, in 2005, federal judge Clarence Charles Newcomer pre- um, presided over a civil trial brought by residents seeking damages for having been mm-hmm. displaced by the widespread destruction following a 1985 police bombing of the, of Move. Mm-hmm. A jury awarded them. $12.83 million verdict against the city of Philadelphia. On November 12, 2020, the city council of Philadelphia passed a resolution um, apologizing for the decision and events uh, preceding and leading to the devastation that occurred in, 19, in May 13, 1985. So a month ago? You said November 12, 2020? Uh, yeah, on oh. November 12, yep. Um. That's when he passed that uh, apology. Yeah, like a public appeal. Yeah, yeah, got it. So the council established an annual day of um, observation, reflection, and recommitment to remember to remember the move bombing. Still have heard of that. Are they gonna Are they gonna uh, put forth efforts to you know help the community? You know, you know uh, what what are they, what are they what are they doing instead of being like it's the day we bombed and that's sad. Like, yeah. are you gonna help? Are you gonna try to help people come up out of a situation like that? Out of out of out of poverty and and if somebody also like if uh if a community does have an inclination or a desire to want to you know get back to you know um living off the land and everything like that you know how about you guys contribute some money to start a public garden or something like that you know and 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 if you're gonna say we're sorry to move how about you do something in their name you know like start a public garden or or, or something you know a class or something that you know teaches the positive aspects of what they were talking about you know like you know living off the land and, and animals should all human life is precious. Cause it sounds like their philosophy was good. Yeah. It just got radicalized in and after that first incident. Once yeah. the police kind of, once you have a bad running with the police, it's like now you become they're radicalized. Whole, they're going to yeah. change that whole narrative. What you, what yeah. you're trying to, what you're trying to put out there. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, yeah. Apology. That's great. So they got, so when was the civil suit? Was that recently as well? Or was that like a couple, a few years back? Which one? Was when there was like $12 million for all the people who who, who were displaced? Uh, that was 2005. Okay. That's still a long time from, that's, you know, there's probably, you know, older people who passed away and never, you know, got a second home. But um, $12.5 million and, you know, coming from that neighborhood to replace it's the damages. Because I was going to say, you could probably get a house similar to that house that was in, in that neighborhood for you know, one hundred and twenty thousand dollars or something like that. So if 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 a bunch of people got split twelve million dollars, they probably all got at least close to six figures. Yeah. But the damages, the displacement, the you he know, lost a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, I stuff mean, you family photos, you th- things that aren't replaceable. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I you can't really put a number on it, but I don't know. How do you feel about that? I mean, some kind of compensation, right? I don't know. I don't know. It's like you can't put a number on it. I'm just trying to say, like, can they be made whole physically from the thing that they lost? being the house obviously you can't lose you can't replace what's in it 
Yeah, I, but I don't know. That's I like, don't think. Yeah, you can't replace the stuff that's in it with money. Yeah. But nobody was hurt. Yeah. So I think I think you can go. It's a tragedy. What happened is you know devastated. Killed the you know it blew up the whole block, lost the house, but nobody. This wasn't like um. Family members were killed, and you go, you know, we're looking for some type of compensation. Yeah. But I can't, the, I can't bring my mom or son yeah. or whatever back from this. I was, I, my, my grandmother helped me for the first time in the house. Yeah. And you blew it up. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, so we, we can't go revisit it or anything like that, yeah. which is a lot unless of, they, unless yeah. they just rebuild the block. I mean, it's not the same house and it's not your yeah. stuff, but I mean, I don't know anything. I don't know if they, if they, I don't even know. I'm sure they rebuilt. I'm, you know what's funny? I bet that block is rebuilt with like condos and nice houses. I bet they came in and took mm. that took that property and and. I'm look the address up. Yeah, I'll yeah. I'm interested. I'm interested to see what, what what happened with that property. I feel like an investment group came in and was like, I mean, well, there's a bunch of rubble here. I mean, yeah, we yeah. could build some. You know, we could build some nice condos here. I feel like Get that's permission from the city. Yeah, I feel like that's probably what happened. Yep. Um, you know, buy buy low, sell high. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. On the on the end of like things being destroyed, um, my my grandmother has. Um, feelings like that not nothing like this happened but you know the crack epidemic came through and really messed up a lot of parts of Baltimore so yeah. she ha- she has these memories of being out on these out on her, her porch and it's time to clean the steps and all the kids are out cleaning the steps because that's kind of like a Baltimore tradition and now it's like you come through that block and it's just boarded up everything's you know it's a mess it, so yeah. it's like this it's depressing so I can't even imagine the trauma. My grandmother has no trauma from it, but it's, it is sad. I couldn't imagine the trauma of like oh no it blew up. It's not like oh the neighborhood got bad, you yeah, know, because yeah. that's that's something you can just kind of accept. Like, yeah. man, shit, man, this used to be a nice neighborhood. But like, oh, yeah, the, no, the police blew it up. They yeah. blew up my grandmother's house. Yeah, that's how I was on uh, with my grandma and my mom used to stay where I was, I guess, in the area where I was born at. Like, that street doesn't even exist. Yeah. <laughs> it was East Baltimore. That street doesn't even exist. It's just gone. I asked my dad, like, hey, you know, I would like to go back just to yeah, see. If, if, yeah, absolutely. Does, that street is not even there yeah. anymore. <laughs> Damn. Are you? Fi- I don't want to say if you're not finished. Go ahead and finish your story. Up. All right. Yeah, I'm almost finished. Let me finish this. Um. So after John Africa's death, his widow, um, Alberta married, Alberta married, um, John Gilbride Jr. Together they had a child, Zachary Africa. Um, they don't know the exact year. Just saying the year, uh-huh. around, maybe 1996. The couple divorced in 1999. Gilbride no longer supported move and resettled in uh, Maple Shade, New Jersey. Alberta Africa, Alberta Africa was living in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, with their son um, John Zachary Gilbride, uh-huh. as he was legally known. As he was legally known on September tenth, two thousand two, in the court in the course of their um, bitter custody dispute, Gilbride testified in the court that Move had threatened to kill him. Mm. The court granted Gilbride um, partial custody of Zachary, allowing him unsupervised visits. On September twenty seventh, two thousand two, shortly after midnight, and prior to Gilbride's first visit. First, first visitation date with Zachary, an unknown assailant shot and killed Gilbride with an, with an automatic weapon as he sat in the car and parked outside his New Jersey home. Wow. Investigators did not name a suspect in the Burlington County um, Police, um, and, the, and the Burlington County Police did not release a ballistic information. The case remains unsolved. A MOVE spokeswoman initially said that the U.S. government had ass- assassinated Gilbride in order to frame MOVE, his wife, his ex-wife Alberta Africa denied that the member that the murder had occurred. She said in 2009 that Gilbride is out hiding somewhere. Oh, like he's not actually dead? Yeah. Wow. Um. So Tony Allen, who was an ex-Move member, says the Move murdered Gilbride. In 2012, the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that Gilbride had told friends and family that he had recorded incriminating evidence in a notebook um, as security against the hit by Move. 
Gilbride said he had placed the notebook inside a locker for for safekeeping. The Burlington County um, Prosecutor's Office declined to follow up on that report. Wow. Um, so Ramon Africa um, acts as a spokeswoman for the group. I'm guessing she's like the only one left. Sure. Um, she has given numerous speeches and events in the United States, United States and other countries. Um, so uh, Maya. Ab- on behalf of, or is she denounced Africa? Or is she still pro? She's still, pro, I mean, pro, pro move, pro, pro move, pro sorry. move, pro move. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, I think his name, Mumia Abu, Abu Jamal. Yeah. Uh-huh. A journalist. Is that his name right? That's, I mean, I know that name. Okay. Okay. I don't know Who if you said it? it right, but I know that name. <laughs> a journalist and activist was convicted in, um, and originally sentenced to death for the unrelated 1981 murder of police officer Daniel Faulkner. Yeah. Common, common was calling for the release of, of that journalist for a long time. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, in 2011, his sentence was committed to life. He had promoted on MOVE and expressed his support for them. MOVE continues to advocate for um, Abu Jamal's release as well as for that, as well as for that of imprisoned MOVE members. MOVE regards Michael Moses Ward, known in MOVE as Birdie Africa, was the only child to survive in a 1985 bombing. So I'm guessing he's left also. Ward was 13 years old at the time of the incident and suffered serious burns from the fire which mm. killed his mother. Mm. Ward's father, um, Andino Ward, sued the city of Philadelphia, and the parties reached a settlement. He lived with his father afterwards and did not remain involved with MOVE. He died in 2013 in an accidental drowning. Um, so in June 2020, MOVE member Del, um, Delbert Africa also died. Now, I wanted to speak on... Um, Michael David uh, Africa? Michael Jr.? Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so Mike Africa um, is a member of the MOVE organization. So I'm guessing he still promotes it. Uh-huh. Um, so the uh, And the Black Philly Radical Collective, he is the motivational, resilient speaker who pushes his never-give-up message with the dynamic stage performances, mixing music, um, and his orations. Mike is the, the son of two political prisoners who were each sentenced to 100 years in prison. Mm. Mike was secretly born um, in Philadelphia prison prison following a police raid on his family's home which i mentioned as an infant yeah he was taken from his mother and placed in an orphanage where he was physically and mentally abused for 11 days before getting rescued by his aunt mm. at age six he witnessed the smoke in the air from the police bomb that was dropped on his family home family's home killing his uncle his cousins and nine members of his family so he was he was taken out in the first in the, in first, the first one yep okay including five of the children he suffered in the orphanage with at age 13 mike um, begin using his music to raise awareness about his his experience to gain the justice for his family members. So there is um a documentary called Forty Years a Prisoner. Forty years that came prisoner. out that came out this year. Oh, um, so it just mentioned about the raid on the move and how he spent um after he was after he was um separated from his mom and after the bombing he spent forty years trying to fight the resilience, I mean, fight the release of his parents and the other MOVE members. Yeah. So I haven't, I haven't gotten to see the it's documentary on, it's yet. It's on HBO. It's on HBO, yeah, it's on HBO, but I am, I am definitely going to watch it because I do want to see that. Check that out. HBO does really, does documentaries very well. Yeah. So, yep, that's called 40 Years of Prison. That was by Tommy Oliver. Wow. Um, yeah, man, so that was my story of MOVE. I just, I, it's wild to me how I heard this on like an ad. Yeah. I think he was on a podcast. He talked about it and I sure. was like, what? Yeah. And then I went to do my research. But I do I want to show you the pictures of that I had um of of the that's the Wow. 
and yeah, the, like the whole square. It's just gone. Yeah, man. Um, it's not a confliction that I have because I mean, if you go back and you look at how the you know the the FBI dismantled the Black Panther Party, or at least attempted to, right? Like they assassinated Fred Hampton in his house, like. You know, um, the FBI has a history of infiltrating political organizations and destroying them from within. Um, they did the same thing. They were involved in a lot of um, operations against um, Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't know how big move is. So when you tell me like, oh, the they they uh, killed this guy to frame move. I don't find that hard to believe because they did the same thing to the Black Panther Party. But I just don't know if move was big enough on their radar to fake a death and you know all that whole kind well, of thing like they, but they, they did big drop, enough to drop they, a bomb yeah <laughs> that's my whole thing is like yeah, yeah. they were big enough and they were concerned enough about them to drop a bomb on them so then for me to go well, I don't know if they you know framed them for a murder and all this kind of I don't know if they did that you go okay well they dropped a bomb on on civilians so I don't know what the limit is to what they're willing to do to stop this organization, but I just don't know how much of an organization it is, but obviously it's some kind of organization because HBO found it interesting enough to do a documentary on not just the bomb, but like, you know, the family tree of the, you know, the political prisoners and everything involved. I'm sure, I'm sure it doesn't just cover the the bombing. I'm sure it covers all the way up until now. And, you know, so it, it is an insane story. And again, I encourage people to just go check out, um, you know what happened to how the Black pa- Black Panther Party was dismantled. How um, J. Edgar Hoover was threatening Martin Luther King with like video uh, audio recordings of him talking to women on the phone. Like they, you know, you know they the the U.S. government has a history of trying to t- dismantle political movements. You know, spreading disinformation in order to villainize people. Like this, this is what happens. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I like I understand that move sounds like they had a really beautiful um message in the beginning mm-hmm. but for me i go if your message is black unity and protecting life and all this kind of stuff but your neighbors hate you you must be doing something wrong right you must and i don't mean like wrong like illegal i mean something like your messaging it'd be different if the whole neighborhood was like oh no they're good people like we we love them and everything like when the police came to get them off the block a lot of people have testified like on document and on documentation and on video like oh yeah we i called the police on them every day yeah they were awful they would come they're saying crazy shit they disrespect me i got into a fight with them so if you're in a black neighborhood and you're you, you know you're not the whole neighborhood isn't rallied behind you clearly your message isn't as unifying as as it as it should be yeah right so that's my whole thing if it was a thing where all 65 houses were like Oh no, they were good people. They would feed the neighborhood kids and they did food drives and everything like that. It sounds like they were very like, you're either with us or against us, black or white. It doesn't yeah. matter. Like you're either with us or you're not. So the neighborhood, you're the neighbor, you're an Uncle Tom if you don't agree with our message yeah. and fuck you and throw trash and you know, so all of the encompassing things I go, man, I don't know. It's it, it's it sounds complicated, but you don't drop a fucking bomb on on a no. on a neighborhood in the in America, man. No. Especially when you go over a story about a guy who built a fucking death machine. And they didn't drop a bomb on him, you know. Yeah. They did. They uh, they could have evacuated. Yeah, he killed himself, and you know, so they they could have evacuated those houses and and all that kind of stuff, you know. But again, like I said, I bring up Waco as an example. Like you know, uh, the United States government has done some very terrible things to people on American soil, but I've never heard of them dropping a bomb on a, on a city block. Like that's insane, especially in such a compact city like West Philadelphia. I mean, yeah. that's, that's insane. Wow. Yep. Great story. There's a lot of details in there that I, I wasn't aware of as well. 
And, uh, you know, I hope people, I hope people go and do the research as well, you know, cause I'm sure, you know, um, I, I don't think we really established a side. I don't think we took a side in, in particular. So, you know, if, if you want to go learn more, you know, go, go do your own research and find out about move and about Fred Hampton and, you know, Black Panther Party and all those kind of things. And it's a lot of shit that comes out that if it wasn't for like podcasts or just me just reading them or me just accidentally coming past it, I would like, yeah, I wouldn't, it just wouldn't be public I wouldn't, knowledge. I wouldn't even, that is, it, yeah, that blows my mind whenever I think this is U.S. history. I didn't That's learn crazy. about this in U.S. history class. No, you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, it's crazy. It's just some stuff that you're not gonna learn. It's like, let's get, let's, it's like, let's give them Martin Luther King and then, uh, Malcolm X. Malcolm X. Let's, yeah. let's give him that in history. and then that's Yeah. It. But the funny thing is, you know, when you talk about um, Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, Colin Kaepernick and whatever, other movements that have come up in the last decade or so, and, you know, all these right-wing um, correspondents want to go, look, why don't you try to be more like Martin Luther King Jr.? He had a message of unifying the country and all this kind of stuff. They hated Martin Luther King Jr. They killed him. Was, they assassinated, assassinated him. Man. You know what I mean? So it's insane to me. To, it's, there is no right way to try to invoke change. There's no right message. If anybody is... It's it's, just, we, let's get rid of it. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a dismantling of the system. It doesn't matter if you're doing it nice, if you're on your knees, if you're doing quiet sit-ins, if you're protesting the anthem. There is no way to properly dismantle change. So to use Dr. Martin Luther King's name and invoke his name in like and saying like, why do you have to be like this? Why not be like him? They spat on him. They imprisoned him. They assassinated him. So there is no proper way to do that. You know, there's always going to be resistance to change. So it doesn't matter what your message is, if it's done in the kind way or whatever. So, you know, it it just doesn't, it doesn't matter. So, and, and, and they will, and if you do it, it's funny how you could become uh, this, this beautiful symbol of hope decades later, when at the time they were throwing bricks at your face. You know what I mean? So for me to see Mitch McConnell and all these guys, I'm not trying to get on a political rant, but to see guys who were there, remember seeing the news and being like, oh, man, these 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 radical um, organizations, man, you guys need to be more like the the, the, the bus, the Freedom Riders and Martin Luther King. It's like they were throwing bricks at those people. So it, there is no proper way to do any of this. If you're trying to invoke change and, 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 and anything radical like that, you are opposed terribly it doesn't matter if you're like hey guys um we love all and can't we just be be like jesus fuck you brick you know what i mean so it, it there is no proper way to, to to do anything like that so thank you fran for um shedding light on that story i appreciate that uh what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back it's my turn to tell you some fucked up shit so stick around all right and we are back fran uh my affirmative murder this week is a story i got from the bbc.co.uk it was an it's an article written by Amy Lofthouse, and um, it is the story of Reuben Hurricane Carter. Um, um, name Icy. It's not like yeah. a rapper's name or something. Yeah, it's actually um, a very good Denzel Washington movie that was based on this story, um, The Hurricane. Um, I believe I watched it in school. might have been because we read the book or something. It's an autobiography. It might have been like an autobiography section of English or something mm-hmm. where, where we read this book. But anyway, um, this is a story that I, I feel like has gone away you know it 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 is it at a point was the most famous wrongful conviction case in the united states history Mm -hmm. you know and 
I feel like me telling it here in 2020, if people would be like, wait, who, who is this? This was in the UK? This was in the US. Oh, this was in the US. This was, this was the, the article is from, oh, okay. from BBC. Okay. Um, so, yeah, um, this is the story of Ruben, Ruben Hurricane Carter. So Reuben Carter was born and raised in the aftermath of the U.S. Great Depression. His father tracked squirrels and raccoons to feed the family in the late 1930s. He took young Reuben and his uncles with him on one trip. As they drove through the New Jersey woodland, they noticed they were being followed by a truck. The driver, a white man, tried to run them off the road. Mm. Carter thought the driver was acting like it was his right to target them. Carter's father stopped. So did the trucker. Carter's father got out. So did the trucker. Carter's uncle followed a shotgun cradle to his chest. Mm. The trucker wisely fled. For young Reuben, this act of self-protection, of looking after yourself, whoever the opponent, had a lasting effect. He was a natural leader as a youth, overseeing a gang that would fight other kids in the neighborhood. But his desire to fight didn't just extend to his own age group. He was once seen by a preacher stealing clothes. The preacher told Carter's father, and Carter promptly attacked the preacher, a man who was far older than him. He did enough damage to merit a beating from his dad, who cracked him in the eye with a belt before calling the police. Mm. It wasn't so much that he was bad or evil, but it was just he just was who he was. So, but the, the part about the white guy. Now, when I hear it, it's like, are they... Driving around looking for like black people to well, I mean, at this time, I mean, this is the 1930s, this is this is the 1930s, early 1940s. I mean, sundown towns are still in existence where it's like, get out of here by the time the night comes, or we're gonna hang you, really. Yeah, oh, yeah, man. There's a whole like, uh, if you ever look up what a green book is, I mean, there's this whole there was all there were all these black, you know, literary people who would go around town to town and go and make a thing called a green book, which would say. This town's cool. Like they have black restaurants. They are welcoming the black people. Don't go here. Like it was like a it was like a travel guide. Mm. They would they had to make these kind of books up until the 1900s to say, hey man, don't drive here. Like get out of here. Leave this town before it gets dark because that's when the KKK comes out. And if they see a black person, they're gonna do X, Y, and Z. So this is the kind of mentality you have to ride around with. You have your son with you. You go. This car's following us. I don't like that he's riding my bumper like this. He clearly is following us. We're going to pull over and deal with this right now. Fuck that. They're not going to fucking find out where we live and come back and burn our house down. That's crazy. But like, it's like, what are the, like, do they wake up and go, yeah, I'm going to go. Hunt well, they wake up, people. they wake up racist. <laughs> I'm going to go hunt a black yeah. person. They wake up racist and they go, oh, is that a black? No, not around here. Not in East Orange, New Jersey. You just, you, you could just throw away everything and just go, I'm going to kill a black person today. What are you throwing away? The judge isn't gonna life. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Go talk to the kid, the people that killed Emmett Till, and see how you know how long it took for the, uh, them to get everything thrown away. Um, so what Reuben was by age fourteen was a prisoner. He had stabbed a man that he claimed was a pedophile and was sent to Jamesburg, which he referred to as a place where quote eight year old kids became the prey of fifteen year old killers and rapists, like a correctional facilityism, but like a juvenile correctional okay, facility. Yeah. Which is also, I mean, he makes it sound pretty fucking terrible. I, that doesn't surprise me, though. His father refused to visit. So Carter put his energy into ruling the, ruling the roost. He became one of the toughest in the prison. A person who, if they wanted to, if they wanted to beat somebody up, they beat them up. Because that's how they rule. 
So he learned, you know, he learned to fight and be ruthless and, yeah. you know, growing up in the prison system. It just it made him who he is. The American prison system was never designed for correction. It was never designed to rehabilitate. It was only designed to create repeat felons. Yeah. It's all, that's all, it's never been, there's never a point in the criminal justice system in America where it's like, yeah, you go in, I went in as an amateur robber and now I came out, my life's together, you know, I don't have a felony on my record, I can get another job and, you know, life goes on. It's like, no. You know, I went into jail for a, pre- a petty crime. I learned about other crimes, and then I came out, and I have no other options because I have a felony on my record. So I have to go do those crimes that I learned about, and then it's like you're a, the back in prison. It's like a storage. It's like a storage. Yes, it, it's a revolving door. Yeah, we just we just want to keep yeah, you'll be back. Yeah, and then make some money off you. Of you. Good as new. Yeah, yeah. Nope. We'll see you in six months. <laughs> you know, I mean, good warm. as new as you improved as a criminal. You came in for yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after escaping from jail. Carter's next stop was the army. He joined in 1954 and was uh, was dispatched to Germany where he took a liking to the bars where and um and within these bars unsteady on his feet one night he stumbled across the army boxers midway through a gym session. He turned to their trainer and announced he could beat any man there. The trainer spotting the telltale sway of an alcoholic suggested he return the next day. He did and proved true to his word. His transformation from ill-disciplined street fighter to professional boxer had begun. So he wasn't that drunk. Well, he wasn't next. He wasn't that drunk the next day. But he remembered, like, I got some way to go. Today. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> this dude loves to fight, so he's like, man. Well, he was drunk, but he was like, no, nah, I'm gonna go fuck somebody yeah. up tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> A former sparring partner said his battles with with Carter made him quickly realize boxing wasn't something I wanted to do uh, in any regularity. Damn, was that Mike Tyson? Yeah, he put the paws on him, man. His name is his nickname is Hurricane. <laughs> fuck people up man this dude was like you know what i thought i like boxing but i just like to watch boxing i don't want to do this anymore uh carter spent two years honing his skills before uh being discharged two stints in prison quickly followed first for skipping jail then for three apparent spurs uh, three apparent spur of the moment muggings Mm. carter turned professional boxer the day after being released from prison in september of 1961 a year later at the iconic madison square garden he needed just 69 seconds and one punch to knock out Florentino Fernandez. Mm. The hurricane was born. He was animalistic in the ring because of the fury he would bring on you. His ex-sparring partner named Fred Hogan would say that about him. Remember that name, Fred Hogan, by the way. In 1963, the hurricane was set to fight two division champion, Emil Griffith. Griffith was bisexual. He had been goaded about his sexuality by Benny Perrette in the buildup of a previous fight. On fight night, Griffith punched Perrette's head so many times that he was carried straight from the ring to the hospital and died 10 days later. Mm. You know, you know, how they do the press conferences and everything. This dude, he's bisexual. He's yeah. gay, whatever. He's like, OK, cool. All right. And he he killed him. Damn. Well, he died. Yeah. He beat him so he bad that he died. He killed. Him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carter wanted Griffith to lose lose control when they met in front of television cameras. He delivered a stinging blow. And this is crazy. Uh, this is like... So he died in a boxing match. Well, he died 10 days later in a boxing Not Emil. Emil, the guy who, caught, who made fun of him for being bisexual, died yeah. 10 days later. Oh. He made fun of Emil, and then Emil was like, okay, cool, I'll see you on fight night, okay? Yeah. And he beat him about the head so many times that he took him, they took him straight from the ring to the hospital, and then he died 10 days later. So he legally killed him. He legally killed him. And then Re- Reuben Carter was like, I want to fight that guy. Damn. That's the thing I respect about boxing. Like, if you kill a dude... I think you need to just retire uh, as a legend. 
Not I'm not, it's bad that you killed somebody, but it's like I'm not gonna fight you. So the guy that killed somebody, Ruben was like, I wanna fight the dad. I wanna dude. fight him. I wanna fight him. That's a different that's a different yeah. right there. Emil Griffith. Well, I mean, think about how much how much notoriety you get as a boxer when they go like, yeah, he's his how hands much, his hands are lethal. Yeah, literally. Think how much death you would get if he hit you good enough amount of time. That's true. No, it's true. But he's, Ruben was looking for that payday. Mm. So he now I don't. I think the story that I've kind of read and put together from this article, um, Ruben Carter is not a good guy or a bad guy, right? But you know he he is he is a man who faced something incredibly terrible. So that's just I want to just want to preface that before I say what he said to Emil Griffith, right? Mm. So he's trying to goad him and get into his head, right? So um, the night before the fight, he said at a press conference, "You talk like a champ, but you fight like a woman who deep down wants to be raped." Wow, which is incredibly wow. like. Well, they say this. some outrageous shit in those those. Uh, yeah, but that's up there. Things. That's up there. I mean, that's crazy to say. Didn't uh, they, Mike Tyson say some crazy shit? Mike Tyson said a lot of crazy. I'm not going to repeat a lot of stuff. <laughs> Mike Tyson has said a lot of crazy shit, but that's up there with some Mike Tyson shit. Yeah, that's wild. But that ain't that ain't that's not topping with Mike Tyson. Yeah, no, Mike Tyson. No, Mike Tyson is like the king of saying like w- insane wild shit. <laughs> uh, the the press were in a frenzy. Griffith was furious. He went hard at Carter for uh, the next day. Too hard. Carter took aim and floored him in two minutes and 13 seconds. Mm. So his strategy worked. He got in his head and it got him off his game plan. In 1965, Carter, now a husband and father, was set to face Joey uh, Giardello. Giardello was the so world. He, he, won, he lost that fight. No, Hur- Hurricane Carter won. He won. Okay. Right. He knocked him out in two minutes. Two minutes. Okay. All right. I thought it was the other way around. So all he right. moved on. That was a big win for him. Got it. And now he was set to face Joey, uh, face Joey Giardello. Giardello was the world middleweight champion, but Carter was at the peak of his career. The fight, uh, reigning champion against Loose Cannon, took place against the backdrop of racial tension. That same year, there was, a, there was trouble in Patterson, New Jersey, where Carter lived. What started as a group of black teenagers throwing rocks at cars turned into a three-day race riot, with 200 of the area's 310 officers on the street. Mm. So now it's like black guy versus white guy with the backdrop of all this shit going on. So it's like now everybody wants to see this fight. Yeah. Either you want to see the black guy get knocked out or you want to see the white guy get knocked out. Something kind of not in a way kind of like what happened with Nate Robinson and Jake Paul. Yeah. But more serious and less silly than that. Yeah. And if you were going into that, like, man, yeah, we're going to see this white guy get knocked out. That was you were sorely disappointed that yeah. night. I didn't go. I didn't go. I didn't think of that going in. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of any of that. I, I was like, I just it assumed. Because it was so silly. It, yeah. it didn't have that type of. There was no. Yeah. 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 If, if you did feel that way, it was like a jokingly way. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, man, it's been a tough year. Let's go see Nate Robinson whoop up on this YouTube dude. And it just, no. No. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't at all. Um. So, uh. yeah, Carter never hid his dislike for the police. In the build up to the Giardello fight, he talked about his love of guns. He said, quote. We'd love to go out on the streets and start fighting. Anybody. Everybody. Mm. We used to shoot at folks. And, and bragged that and he bragged that he once stabbed a man everywhere but the bottom of his feet. What? This is like his this what is how he, is th- this is how he builds up his fights. Oh. Which is crazy. You're like just admitting to crimes and implicating yourself and shit. It's crazy. Uh but in a way, it kind of for the times, your white people were like, "Oh my god, this mon- this animal!" You know what I mean? Like it's like a Mayweather thing. Mayweather wasn't playing; he wasn't playing so much on racial stuff as much, but he knew people hated him and wanted to see him lose, yeah. so he would kind of, you know, double down on it. So I could see maybe there was some kind of strategy to this. He might have also just been talking crazy, but like I'm Michael sh- Jordan, huh? Like Michael Jordan? 
Oh, like, like he's making shit up? He's making shit up. Yeah, he's like, yeah, no, he said, uh, I can't play basketball and I'm trash. And like, he never said Nobody that. Nobody said that. He's a big fan of me. <laughs> Michael Jordan's a maniac. <laughs> he's like, I don't know if he said it, but I, th- I think so, he said so it. So I took that uh, personal. Like, Jesus. <laughs> it's basketball, man. Yeah, man, Jesus. Uh, so uh, uh, Carter also said that African-Americans should arm themselves for protection. If you act, he said, if you act like you're afraid of me, you better be afraid of me because I would do exactly to you what you would do to me. I'd just do it quicker. Mm. The light bounced off Carter's bald head as he entered the ring, clad in silk victory, um, clad in silk. He's built, too. I saw a picture of him. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a hurricane. <laughs> victory, victory would see him take the world title. He started well, body blow after body blow, pu- uh, pushing Giardello back, but he could not deliver the final strike. They went a full 15 rounds, and after the referee raised Giardello's hands, uh, arms above his head, it was a it was a loss that would start the decline of Carter's career. What yeah. loss? All it takes is one loss too. When you're on that track to becoming like great, yeah. and one loss could fuck you all up. A year later, in June 1966, on a muggy day in Patterson, New Jersey, despite it being the early hours of the morning, inside Lafayette Bar and Grill, a rundown place on the corner of a rundown area, bartender Jim Oliver was still working. Fred Nayuks. Is, was sitting uh, a po- was sitting opposite him, drinking in one, with a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other, talking to Willie Marins. At the edge of the bar sat Hazel Tannis, who was coming who who had come in for a drink after her uh, late night waitressing shift. So it's just like a the the late night early morning yeah. in a bar. Two black men enter the bar. It's unusual. The Lafayette does not serve black patrons. One had a shotgun and Ew. the other had a pistol. Oliver threw a bottle at the assailants and turned his back on them. So he's like, get out of here. We don't serve coloreds. In a heartbeat, he was on the floor. His spinal cord severed by a shotgun blast. Damn. Nyox doesn't, uh, didn't have a chance to move from his stool, and he died in his seat. Cigarette still burning in his hand. A bullet in the back of his head. Mm. Marins turned his head at, the, at both the right and wrong moment, and a bullet passed through his eye and exploded out of the front of his forehead. Jesus. He passed out. Tannis jumped out of her seat and was trying to hide when the gunman found her. They emptied their remaining bullets into her body, leaving her bleeding on the barroom floor. Mm. Before turning uh, and disappearing into the, the New Jersey night, eight bullets, I mean, before, before leaving and turning into the New Jersey night, eight bullets, two dead, one dying, and one seriously injured, all in 20 seconds. Wow. Patty Valentine was asleep on her couch with the TV still playing in her apartment that was above the Lafayette. Her son was asleep down the hall. A banging noise woke her up, and she assumed that Jim was still closing up for the night. She went to the window and, and realized that the bar was still open because the neon light was shining through her living room. So that was unusual to her because they yeah. usually cut the neon sign off when it's time to close. And it was a time where the bar should be closing up. Valentine heard voices. A frightened, un, un, a frightened, unidentifiable voice that cried out uh, into the night. She went to the front of her window before moving, uh, before moving into her bedroom, which overlooked the Lafayette Street. A white car was parked in the middle of the road. Valentine sees it, and it has New York license plates, dark blue with yellow and gold lettering, and the taillights were shaped like triangles. Uh, she stood and watched as two black men left the bar. One climbed into the driver's seat and the other climbed into the passenger seat. And they drove off into the night. 
She's seen enough. She decided to put on a raincoat and head down the stairs through a side door. A man tells her to stay away. Glancing inside, Valentine sees Marin's holding onto a pole, blood on his forehead. Mm. Instinctively, she walked towards him. As she rounded the pool table, something caught her attention. It was Tannis. She knows her. She recognizes that the country club she recognizes the country club uniform that she's wearing, uh, a black uniform that was slowly turning red. Valentine's eyes lingered on the body before she took a second to process and scream before running up to her apartment and calling the police. The police were called at around two thirty four in the morning. Who was the guy that told her that to? Who was that? The guy that got shot in the face. Oh shit! Yeah. Uh, two people are dead. Tannis is clinging to life. And she and Marins are taken to the hospital as detective, as detectives, officers, and civilians surround the bar. He got shot in the back of the head, though. He and got it came shot out the front. He got shot in the side of the oh, head. Oh, I thought it came out. The, he got oh. shot in the side of the head, and then it went out his forehead. Oh, I so thought like, he got shot in the back of the head. And came oh, out here, the but front. it went through his eye. So he lost an eye, and it went out of his forehead because he turned his head at the last second. So it caught him on the side of the head, and then popped out his forehead. That's crazy. That's insane for him to even be like even up and like uh, like functioning. Yeah. Less than a mile away, John Artis, a black 19-year-old track star, was ready for home after an evening of dancing at a night spot. Looking around for a lift, Artis saw John, uh, saw uh, Reuben Carter, a regular that he met a couple weeks before this night. Artis yelled out to Carter, and, and Carter threw him his keys and tells him to drive, to drive him home. John Bucks Royster, a drifter who, who had too much to drink this night, got into the front while Carter lied down in the back across the seats. Artists set off, but six minutes later, the interior of the car was lit up by headlights. Mm. A, police cars, a, a police car had pulled them over, and, uh, and Artist was nervous because he had never been in any, in any kind of trouble. Carter sits up as the police officer leans in and allegedly tells them he's looking for two Negroes. Damn. Carter replies, and, and, and any two will do? The officer recognizes Carter and greets him then asked to see artist's license. He hands it over to him, and it's inspected, and moments later, artist is told he can go. So a quick little run-in, but they, you know, they're sent off. Yeah. But Carter already, he, he's very, he doesn't like police, and he, you know, so he's already aggressive right out of the gate. I'd have been like, bro, lay it down. Don't say that. Yeah. Uh, Carter lies back down and directs artist to go to his house. He wanted to go to his house, pick up more money, before heading back out to the bars. So this whole night is confusing <laughs> to me. So, so Artis is trying to go home. He sees Reuben Carter. Reuben Carter goes, hey, man, here, fling, throws him the keys. Yeah, you can go, you can drive my car home and drive me home. And they drive some other guy home as well. He stops at his house. Yeah. He goes in the house to get some money. And then Artis drives the car to drop off this guy in the front seat. And he was supposed to go to his house. Yeah. And then I guess, I guess Reuben was going to take over from there. Like, all right, man, I just needed to sober up a little bit. I'm going back out. Yeah, I guess he's gonna take back over his car. <laughs> yeah, or he, maybe he was gonna say, "Actually, no, I'm wrong. He was artist was supposed to drop Carter off at another bar, and I don't know, take the car for the night or leave the car there and then walk the rest of the way. I don't really know how that. But he's drunk. He's the boxing guy. He's got a little bit of money. I think he just was like, I'm out having a good time, man. Whatever. Yeah, you take my car and you can drive it. You know, yeah. it was very. It's a very confusing series of incidences, right? But it doesn't really matter because. Um, they never got to where they were trying to get to. Uh, Artist is confused when, within 30 minutes of leaving the night spot, he is, he is stopped once again by the same officer as before. 
But this time he has more company and he orders artists to follow him. They drive through the night with a, uh, with a convoy in tow to the Lafayette bar. They are told to get out of the car. Artist is baffled. Carter is suspicious. They stand by the police and watch as two bodies shrouded in sheets are brought out of the building. And artist realizes that this isn't good. You know, like you just come from a nice spot. And now you're at a crime scene and police have been kind of aggressive to you. And there's bodies coming out. You're like, Oh no, this looks the, the fix is in. Yeah. Like, Why are we here? Why right. are we, we don't know what's going on here. Right. You know, uh, the next thing he knows he's at the hospital being walked through all the hubbub and, uh, dragged towards a bed on it lies Marin's one eye patched up doctors and nurses swarmed around him an officer a man with a huge scar across his face approaches Marin's and asks him bluntly are these the men that shot you Marin sits up to get a better view with his one fucking eye he looks at Carter and Artis standing next to each other a second ticks by he shakes his head no there's no time for relief however Artis and Carter are whisked off by the police and taken to the station where Detective Vincent DeSimone interviews them. For 17 hours. Damn. Yeah, for 17 hours. That's part of the breakdown. They got to break you down and, you know, you lose all sense of time and that, that, that's how they get you to crack. So for 17 hours, the questions come to Artis. Did you shoot them? Did Carter shoot them? Artis is told repeatedly, tell us what happens. Tell us what happened or we'll lock you up. If you just tell us it was Carter, you can go home. An officer arrives to administer a lie detector test and looks both men in the eyes and tells them that if they lie, he'll ensure that they get the electric chair. Both men protest their innocence. Artist refuses to blame Carter and they are released the next day. Four months later, the day before his 20th birthday, Artis is out buying a soda. He turns to find a shotgun under his chin. Mm. He and Carter are arrested for triple murder. A month after the shooting, at Lafayette, Hazel Tannis succumbed to her injuries. No dying declaration was taken from the witness, but Detective DeSimone was now investigating a triple homicide, and he was about to get a lucky break. So once, once Hazel Tannis died, they were like, nah, this is now, we already had a double murder, now we got a triple murder, and we need, yeah. we need, to, we need to bring somebody in. And, he was, he, and fortunately for him, he caught a lucky break. Check this out, Fran. Alfred Bello and Arthur Dexter Bradley had been near the Lafayette bar that night. Bello was on the lookout while Bradley, a career criminal, was trying to, uh, was trying to break into a nearby metal company. Mm. I guess to steal some scrap. Yeah. Bello grew bored of watching Bradley and turned to walk toward the bar in search of cigarettes. How do you get bored being a lookout? I'm giving you a job, man. You're supposed to be partners in this. You get bored and just walk away. Not only Daddy, how do you get bored being a lookout, but isn't it so convenient that you just happen to be, you know, doing your lookout job, got bored, walked toward, walked toward the Lafayette, and was able to be at the right place at the right time to be the star witness of this case? Mm. I'll continue. So, you know, he told himself, like, oh, man, those bangs, that must be like a drummer in a bar at the Lafayette. Anyway, I'm going to keep walking towards the bar. Okay. So he kept walking towards the bar in search of cigarettes. According to his testimony, he heard – oh, I'm sorry. I already read that already. Um <clears throat> He saw two men come out of the Lafayette, one carrying a pistol, the other a shotgun. One, he said, was Reuben Carter. The other, he said, was John Artis. So luckily for DeSimone, right? I mean, this, you know, Detective DeSimone, right? You know, you know, four, a month, uh, four months later and no, nobody's, uh, or a month later and nobody's able to, you know, solve this crime. And yeah. here comes two star witnesses right at the nick of time. 
The grizzled DeSimone was suspicious. The two waited four months before coming forward. Doing so shortly after Mayor Frank Graves put up a $10,000 reward for information. Also not suspicious at all. So now there's money on the line and it's four months after the crime, but here's these witnesses coming forward. Equally, Bellow's story wasn't complete. It later emerged that after watching the two gunmen leave, Bellow went into the bar where there's bodies everywhere, people dying, people dead. He went into the bar. He saw Marion's body with Tannis dying in the corner. He stepped inside, leaned over the slumped figure at the bar, and emptied out the cash register of his meager takings. So he robbed the bar after the crime and didn't call the police. Yeah. And this is the witness that they're using to, to identify Ruben and uh, Artis. Trustworthy or not, it was, it was DeSimone's only uh, lead. He charged Carter and Artis, and the case went to trial on the 7th of April, 1967. It was the lead that, the only lead he had that he created? <laughs> it was the only, only lead he had. <laughs> it was the only lead he had. A very <laughs> accurate lead at very, that. Very accurate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I saw it down the road that it was definitely John Artis and Reuben Carter, and they had a shotgun and a pistol. I saw that clearly. Um, after seven weeks, the all-white jury made the decision of guilty. Life imprisonment awaited Carter and Artis. There was no death penalty, however, because a jury later said of Artis, we didn't want to kill the kid. So how nice of them. Yeah. We'll just take his life. Carter arrived at Trenton State Prison in 1967 and immediately informed the authorities that he would not wear their prison uniform, he would not work in their prison, and he would not eat their food. And he would not do anything for any of the guards. He also said that if a hand was placed on him, then you're going to have to kill me right then and there. Because if you don't kill me, I will kill you. Mm. So he was very indignant. And he was like, this is, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Yeah. I'm, you might've locked my body in here, but I don't, I don't submit to any of this shit. I'm not doing any of this shit. And don't touch me because <laughs> I will fuck you up. You see my work. Prisoner number 45472 was described on his admission sheet as hostile, aggressive, as a, as a hostile and aggressive individual who, according to the police, um, to the prison psychologist, would be a manipulative and violent to obtain his self-centered desires. So they already had him pegged as like a top tier dangerous uh, criminal in, in the prison system. Yeah. Carter was angry at the justice system, at the police, at everyone. He would only let his wife and baby daughter visit him once a month, fearing that his wife would be badly affected. Right, not that he was in position to receive visitors, because as soon as as soon after he arrived, he was sent to the hole, also known as solitary confinement. You know, you don't get to just tell the corrections officers like, I'm not doing none of this shit. And there's not they're going to do something. Yeah. And you might knock one of them out, but they're going to jump you and then they're going to do, you know, they'll do what you do to you what they need to. Uh, while he was there, Carter felt unwell. There was something wrong with his eye. The prison doctor diagnosed him with a detached retina, which Carter put down to being an old boxing injury, while other prisoners thought it was likely the result of a fight that he had in the mess hall. Carter was in pain, and if it wasn't, re if it wasn't treated, it would be the end of the boxing career that he intended to resume once he was released. He wanted to have the operation outside of prison, but the authorities would not let him leave the grounds. He had the surgery in the prison hospital. When he woke, he could see nothing from Nothing but darkness out of his right eye. His sight wow. was gone and his days as Hurricane were over. So was he like a celebrity or 
Yeah, he was. He, was he, uh, he wasn't. Known. He wasn't Oscar De La Hoya or Mike Tyson, but yeah. he was a he was a notable boxer at a time where there was no MMA or anything like. Was boxing he a notable was, boxer to people that watch boxing? Yes, but okay. he might have been even. Especially, he's a New Jersey boxer in New Jersey. People knew who he was. Mm. You know, he, he like like everybody doesn't know who Tank is, yeah. but we're from Baltimore, so Tank's like a you know he's like a he's a he's an A list celebrity here, mm. but anywhere else he might be like, oh, that's that guy. I think he boxes. I think yeah. his name's Gervonta or something yeah. like that. You know, so. It was like that. Like he he's a boxer who's won and fought at Madison Square Garden and he's from New Jersey and he's in New Jersey. So he definitely was a celebrity in New Jersey. And he trusted but, them to do surgery on his eye. No, he didn't trust them to do anything. He wanted to have surgery at a hospital. They said no, you can't go to that hospital. But he needed the surgery because he was in pain. So he goes, Okay, well I I have to have it here, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it ended in the loss of the sight in his right eye. So that was the, so they so <laughs> his career his career was over. Fred Hogan, as I mentioned earlier, this was this was the sparring partner who was like once he sparred with, with Hurricane Carter, he was like, nah, fuck this. Mm. Fred Hogan was lying in a bed in his barracks in Germany, reading clippings sent by his father about his old friend Ruben. He felt like something wasn't right. His former sparring partner didn't seem like he had gotten a fair trial. When he returned home, he visited both Carter and Artis in prison. Before long, he was sleeping in a cell to cut down on his travel time. He called himself number 45472 and a half midway between Carter and Artis's prison numbers. Hogan began digging. He went to visit Arthur Bradley, who brandished a baseball bat uh, as he welcomed him into his home, and he also went to visit Alfred Bellow, who was serving time. Bellow mentioned that he, he had been promised a reward for his testimony, and Bradley said he had been promised a deal that never materialized. Bellow said that he had seen two black guys outside the bar, but he wasn't sure if it was Carter or Artis. Bradley agreed. Carter, meanwhile, decided to right some wrongs of his own. His fury of his trial and the fact that he was tried, tried by 12, 12 white folks rather than Muhammad Ali, Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, and the likes of people like that, who he considered to be an actual jury of his peers, mm. uh, channeled into his writing. Using toilet paper, the only material that he had on hand, Carter painstakingly wrote an autobiography, which was smuggled out by any means possible. A copy of the 16th round made its way to Bob Dylan. Dylan finished his tour in England in 1975 and on his way home made a detour to the Clinton Correctional Facility where Carter awaited him. The men spent several days together and Dylan played a gig at the prison in November of that year. He released Hurricane, the story of the man authorities came to blame for something that he had never done. The song became the heartbeat of Dylan's Rolling Thunder, uh, Rolling Thunder Review Tour, which included that special show inside of Carter's prison. Muhammad Ali was brought into the fold by Lipton, an old friend of Carter. Carter and Ali did not like each other. Carter found Ali rude, while Ali was wary of Carter's friendship with rival boxer Sonny Liston. But Lipton knew the importance of having someone as well, as well respected as Ali on board. Yeah, so, <laughs> this is a guy who was like, you fight like a girl who wants to be raped. Yeah, and he's like, no, nah, I don't like Ali. The way he talks to people is rude. It's like, bro, you're super. Rude. I don't. That's like insane. What you how you talk to people, right? But in October of 1975, Ali beat Joe Frazier in the Thriller in Manila, the final fight in their iconic trilogy. Two weeks later, after their rivalry pr- played out in front of one billion viewers, Frazier and Ali stood together to speak in Carter's defense. So he now is Bob Dylan, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier. I mean, they're bringing a major spotlight to this guy's uh, case. 
As the celebrities kept the case in the public eye, Hogan worked the legal side. He got, he got hold of a tape on which Bello was told he would be looked after should he identify Carter and artists. Three transcripts had not been seen by the defense team, uh, by the defense team at the original trial. A retrial was ordered. So because of all these little, you know, missteps, a retrial was ordered. So he has his opportunity for a day in court. Madison Square Garden once hosted Carter's biggest victory. Now in 1975, it was full of people fighting for his freedom. Mm. Carter was there in spirit as Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, and Isaac Hayes took the stage to raise money for Carter's legal fund. 20,000 people intent on getting him out of prison raised about $125,000. The money was more important than now than ever because a retrial had been ordered. Carter would only be able to get out of prison before the proceedings if he could post bail. But there was no sign of the concert money and Carter suspected that a thief in the he suspected a thief in the ranks. So the $125,000 disappeared. Wow. At Deer Lake training camp, Muhammad Ali's phone rang. It was Carter. He needed money. Ali wanted to know how much and Carter said it would be substantial. Ali said, I can't just, I mean, uh, uh, Carter told Ali, I can't just get out. I got to get John out of here too. John doesn't have any money. And Ali agreed to pay for both of them to be bailed out. Mm. So shout out to Muhammad Ali. He's all, he was all, he was always was, was a political activist, a person who was for, you know, any cause that, you know, helped black people. And he used this platform very well. The next day, Carter and artists stood on the court steps, blinking into the glare of the camera lights. They were free for now. So where, where are these witnesses at? Well, one of them's in prison and the other one is free. Uh, Carter went home and soon Carter went home and soon his wife, May Thelma was pregnant again, but home life was difficult. The Carters had no money and daughter Theodora watched it, watched the family uh, suffer as their benefits were cut off. Now that their father was free. Coming out of prison had not solved all of Carter's problems. But here we are at the trial. Artis and Carter re-entered the courtroom in December of 1976. Both were wary. Artis had butterflies as he made his way to the seat. Carter was composed but feeling abandoned. He believed that the famous friends who had attached themselves to his cause had disappeared once he had, once he had been released. Which is probably true. Things, qu- things quickly went wrong. Bello once again cha- Bello once again changed his statement. So he had, he had already said that like um no I, I didn't know that it was them. But he once again changed his statement to uh to place Carter and Artis at the scene. And the prosecution introduced a devastating racial revenge theory. Before the Lafayette shooting, a black publican, and no that's not a black republican. I found out from this from doing I had to look that up what a publican is. A publican is just somebody that manages a bar. It's a weird word. Really? A pub manager. Hmm. But a black publican sounds like a black Republican, but it's not just, it's somebody who manages a a pub. Uh, But this black publican's name was Roy Holloway. He was murdered by a white man named Frank Conforti. Holloway's stepson was Eddie Rawls, a barman at the club where Carter and Artis had been on the night of the murders. The prosecution playing on the angry black man stereotype claimed that the murder of the three white people at the, at the bar did not serve at the bar that did not serve black patrons was an attempt at revenge for Hollow, uh, for Holloway's killing. An artist became disheartened. He became so disheartened that he stopped going to court. 
So they basically were saying you got revenge for this black uh, uh, black publican being murdered by going into this bar that doesn't serve black people and shooting everybody. Yeah, that was their that was their um, the narrative that they they started to create. Those in the media who had helped Carter secure his release also turned against him. Midway through the trial, the front page of the local local paper displayed a photograph of Carolyn Kelly. She had been one of Carter's most prominent black supporters. Here she was lying in a hospital bed, claiming that Carter had beaten her up in Maryland. The article documented how Carter had attacked the woman who had helped secure his release. Carter denied the claims to his lawyer, calling it complete bullshit. But the damage and the negative press and attention was done. Also, this woman, she later, the, the charges were later dropped. But again, it didn't matter because the, the narrative was continued to, continued to be spun. Uh, Carter's, re- Carter's refusal to take the stand would not help either. The first time around, the jury deliberated for six hours. This time, it was for nine. The outcome was the same, life in prison. His support had quieted, but one 15-year-old boy and a group of Canadians were about to find their voices. Now, this right here, where I'm picking up from here, this is the story of the movie The Hurricane starring Denzel Washington. Okay. It picks up with this 15-year-old boy um, finding a book in a library and being like, oh, my God, like, who is this guy? And then they, he reads the book, and he was, the people who are his guardians, they all you know, band together to help this man get out of, of prison, or at least make an attempt to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so um, 15, a 15-year-old boy and Canadians were about to find their voices. Lesra Martin had gone from living in a New York ghetto to, Ontario, to an Ontario mansion with a Canadian commune. He was in a warehouse on the waterfront when the book caught his eye. A huge, bald black man stared, in front of, stared out at him from the cover of this book, and the eyes followed Martin around the room. Martin thought the man looked as though he had something to say, and he wanted to hear it. As he stepped forward, another customer leaned in to the book bin and grabbed the book. It was a copy of the 16th round, the autobiography that had originally been written on fucking newspaper, I mean, uh, toilet paper. Martin watched as the man walked away, Reuben Carter's face peering out from the crook in his arm. Something told him to follow. Eventually, the man put the book down and Martin, as quickly as he could, grabbed it. So if, if this guy had bought this book, we would we would not have been here. Mm. That's the crazy thing. These people are the people that end up coming and, you know, uh, fighting for Reuben Carter once again after Bob Dylan and all these people. After all that first wave of, of help and support died and he was tried again and found guilty. Mm. This is the second wave. But it all hinged on this guy, this kid, 15-year-old kid, buying a book at a bookstore. With the help of his pseudo-family, Martin read Carter's life story. He saw the pain in Carter's eyes as he recognized the, uh, that my word is my bond mantra that Carter wrote about. Tentatively, with an unsured hand, he wrote to Carter to let him know that he was still having an influence on people beyond the prison walls. Carter, by now, back in Trenton State, did not take visitors. He did not write letters, and he did not interact with people outside in the outside world. Maybe it was the messy handwriting that made him curious enough to write a letter, or maybe it struck him how nice it was, and he decided to write back. A few months later, a scared, frozen young man stood in the middle of what had become, what had once been the execution room, staring across at Carter. He told him about the Canadians that he lived with, and slowly, gradually, Carter became part of their family. Lisa Peters, the head of the commune, was not a woman to be messed with. She did not mind arguing with Carter or telling him that he was wrong. She decided that they were going to uh, get to free Carter. Working with lawyers, uh, the tenacious Canadians compiled a habeas corpus petition. 
Habeas corpus is the last form of appeal, a way for Carter to protest that his imprisonment was not lawful. To present a case, a person has to prove that they have exhausted all other legal avenues, and Carter was all out of options. He felt no one could understand, not even artists, who had been released on parole in 1981 for good behavior and for his role in stopping a prison riot. It was all or nothing for Carter. This time there would be no trial, no jury, no court, no one would rule guilt or innocence, just a judge who would read the 90-page submission that contained Carter's last shot at freedom and decide if the, defendants, if the defendant received a fair trial. Lisa Rockin had not heard of Carter and ignored his, chi- ignored his children when they urged him to listen to the Dylan song. So they're like, they played in this Bob, they wanted to play in this Bob Dylan song, but the judge is like, I don't know anything about any of this. <laughs> this was a long time ago. I don't remember any Ali and all this shit. I'm not yeah. doing it. I'm not, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this and that's it. Instead, he read the petition. What he read troubled him. Firstly, the racial revenge theory. A prosecutor during the trial said something to the effect that this is what black people do. There was also the problem with Bellow. Sorokin noted that Bellow had been given a lie detector test, but not told the result directly. Instead, the prosecution had hinted to him that he had hinted to him the story he told about Carter and artists being the gunman had came through as the truth on the lie detector test, lie detector test. Sorokin believed Bellow had picked up his version of the had picked up his version, not because it was the truth, but because someone told him it was the truth. Carter's lawyers ran to the courthouse on November 7th of 1985. They flipped straight to the final pages of Sorokin's verdict where the words leapt off the page. The conviction was set aside. The next day Carter was brought to the courthouse. The room was packed with his supporters watching. There was still a chance Carter could go through another trial should the prosecutors wish on his way to the court. Carter passed his sheepskin coat to another man who silently handed him a blue jacket. Carter was leaving prison today, either as a free man or in a disguise. The prosecution claimed Carter was unchanged, a violent man who would always be a danger to the public. Sorokin retired to his chambers to reflect. He came out and looked at Carter straight in his eyes and told him that he would be set free into the custody of his lawyers. He was not to leave the country in case the prosecution could uh, force a third trial. 19 years after the day he left that night spot in New Jersey, Carter could go back to his everyday existence. 13 times the state of New Jersey appealed to appealed against the decision and 13 times they failed. Carter had what was most wanted his freedom and the freedom, he had the freedom to travel as he wanted to by moving to, uh, to moving to Canada two years after his release. And the freedom to love, which I, this is kind of crazy to me, but this is what he did. Is whatever. He had the freedom to love, which he did by divorcing May Thelma, his wife of all these years, and marrying uh, Mary Peters, the woman who, wow. the woman who uh, got him, you know, was, you know, the lead of the, you know, his law team or whatever. Yeah. Um, now, he left his wife and his kids and everything for this woman. Which, you know, no judgment. I'm not going to judge him. But Carter's relationship with Peters was complex. He loved her, but he didn't like her. He adored her strength, but he didn't want to spend any time around her. For Carter, this was, stif- this was a stifling reminder of the prison he had escaped. He was torn. Because every time he would look at her, he was reminded that like, I was in prison and everything like that. But he did leave his wife. This was the decision that he made. Yeah. So <laughs> part of him wanted to stay. 
to repay the debts that the Canadians had incurred when they fra- when they uh when they framed their lives around getting him released from prison. But he also felt trapped. A trophy horse with no money of his own, uh a bird gilded in a cage. So he felt like he felt indebted to them. Mm. Maybe that's why he decided maybe Mary liked him and and he was like, I I gotta I have to. She got well, me she got me out of prison. He wasn't he didn't like her physically or I don't know. I don't that it didn't say that. I think he just it reminded him of what he went through. Okay. Yeah. One Christmas you have to date the person, but I mean you I mean, according to you. Uh one Christmas, Carter had had enough. He packed his Jeep with his possessions and with $125 in his back pocket, he left. You left her? He left the compound. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he left her. Oh, okay. He left the compound and he left her. He knocked on Lester Martin's university door, but he found himself drifting back and forth between there and the commune. So he left with all this like, you know, energy of I'm out of here. And then he would come back and bounce back and forth between <laughs> there and the 15 year old kid. Now more of an adult, but the kid who found his book, he would mm-hmm. go stay at his dorm. Okay. Yeah. So for nine years, Carter was a nomad, but he found purpose working with the wrongfully convicted. This time, Carter was the celebrity working on the outside to free those inside. Artists and Carter live, uh, I'm sorry, artists and Carter's lives have been intertwined for 19 years. They became intertwined once more when Carter was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Artists went to visit him and eventually became his primary carer. Nursing the man who, as a teenager, had been told to blame, who, who, who as a teenager, he had been told to blame for a vicious triple murder. Artists watched Carter fight as he had through his career. But as time went on, he began to fade. Artists saw him disappearing, his weight dropping to a little over six stone, which is a British article, so I don't know. I think, I think a stone is like 30 pounds. <clears throat> He's a big dude, too. He was a big dude, so that's, that's, a, big, that's, a, that's yeah. a lot of loss. Um, artists went upstairs one morning and saw Carter stretch with his hands up, up to the sky before folding them down across his lap. On April 20th of 2014, at the age of 76, Reuben Carter was gone. From his deathbed, Carter wrote a newspaper stating that his single greatest regret in life was, was that he was not able to free David McCollum, a young man who he felt was wrongly imprisoned. McCollum's freedom was, was Reuben Hurricane Carter's dying wish. He said, quote, if I find heaven after this life, I'll be quite surprised. I lived in hell for 49 years. I'm sorry, I lived in hell for the first 49 years of my life and in heaven for the past 29. Six months after Carter's death, his wish came true. McCollum was exonerated and now lives as a free man in New York City. Mm. The murders at the Lafayette Bar and Grill remain unsolved. Dang, I was about to ask you that. Yeah, and so that was the story of Reuben Hurricane Carter. Um, uh, there's some disputes about, you know, obviously as far as the book, I mean, as far as the movie goes, like it's an autobiography. So some stuff is judged up. It's, you know, it's told, you know, more righteously. And there's some disputes about the accuracy of the story told in that. But the, ju- the, 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 the main meat is there that this man was wrongfully imprisoned mm-hmm. and he eventually gets out. And yeah. I think Denzel Washington does a great job in the movie. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, Reuben Carter, like all people, was a complicated man. You know, he has some dark sides. He has some good sides. And, you know, he spent the last remaining years of his life fighting to get people out who were wrongfully convicted like he was. So rest in peace to Reuben Hurricane Carter. And, uh, yeah, you know, people are complex. Yeah. That was a good story. Um, so 
What about the lady that was upstairs? Nothing else came from her or? No. I don't even know if she mm. was a key witness. The key witnesses were the two men who were committing a crime Allegedly. down the road. Well, no, they. I mean, they were there. They were there. One of them robbed. One of them went into the bar and stole money out of the cash register while there was bodies all over the floor. They just didn't see specifically Reuben Carter and uh, and the young man, young uh, young man, Mister Artis. They mm. were told that. Mm. You know, I don't even know if he saw anybody leave. That's the whole thing. Yes, they weren't. I thought that whole thing was made up. No, no, no. They were there. Mm. He went into the bar and stole money out of the cash register. He just didn't see them. But they told, but that so they placed the person at the scene, yeah. and they were like, "We're going to use you." Say this, hmm. you know, we saw it in Central Park Five. You guys were at the park, so we're going to go ahead and try to f- make it a way to frame it to where you, the the times line up. And you must really needed the money. You did walk in there and bodies all over the place. You just like, oh yeah, man. Well, they were stealing scrap whoop, whoop. metal down the road. I mean, these people were not. Yeah, but yeah. that's not walking into a a a, a yeah a yeah. Bar with you got to be, really, be really unaffected to be like, oh, there's this a crazy yeah, walk crime around scene. all the kind. Savage. Anyway, you know, desperate times. Mm. Uh, anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and jump into these good vibes. Yes, yes, it's time for another segment of good vibes, folks. Uh, we're approaching the Christmas time, and I hope, I hope everybody enjoyed their, you know, their uh, um, Hanukkah and, you know, um, um, Rosh Hashanah and all of those things. I don't know all the other ones, but I'm hoping you enjoyed all of those. Speaking of Hanukkah, I'm sorry. Please. I did not know. (laughs) I was at work. Mm -hmm. I mean, to call you good vibes. I was at work today. And they played the radios on. Uh Christmas. Sure. Songs, whatever. And the song comes on. Right. I'm like, the voice of the song sounds familiar, whatever. Right. And then, like, some of my coworkers sang it, right? Okay. I'm like. It wasn't a song I'm familiar with. Sure. So I'm like, how do you, I'm like, how, how do y'all know this? this song? Right? Yeah. So then I was like, I'm gonna just look it up. I looked it up. I did not know Adam Sandler had uh Oh uh, yeah, man, you never seen I, I, <laughs> You never seen Eight Crazy Nights? No. Oh man, listen. I you know, I don't know much about Hanukkah and Jewish practices and everything like that, but that is a fun way to learn a little something. It's a that silly song was off. It's a silly it's a silly <laughs> cartoon, uh, but it is a great fun movie with some fun songs. I love Eight Crazy Nights. Adam Sandler is like a cartoon Christ, uh, a Hanukkah musical. Uh, and also he, you know, Hanukkah, uh what's that song? You know, he 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 has all kind of parody songs. He has a Hanukkah parody song. It's very famous. They they do it on uh, the office. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, man. Oh yeah. I do it. Yeah, the Sandler, man. <laughs> The Sandman. Listen, uh, Eight Crazy Nights. Anybody who hasn't seen Eight Crazy Nights, it's, it's so fun. Anyway, uh, my good vibe story this week um, to send you guys off into 2020 with some great spirits is a story about a restaurant owner who was using his restaurant to give free meals to people who in turn received some good karma of his own. Okay. So a restaurant owner is known for feeding anyone, regardless of whether or not they can pay for their meal. Uh, nearly, he nearly lost his business because of the pandemic, but then the local community decided to give in the most generous way. Since a family posted a GoFundMe campaign for the DC restaurant, uh, Sakina Halal Grill, uh, Kazi Manan has received over $331,000 from more than 7,000 people, which that ratio is kind of crazy. I don't know. That's crazy that that, that seems like not that many people to get that much money. That's crazy. Uh, and the donations just keep rolling in. Uh, he said, I used to preach, don't let anybody fall and pick them up. Uh, uh, he said that to his donors in an interview with, in, with NBC Washington. You picked me up and I'm overwhelmed. I have tears in my eyes. 
tears of joy. Thank you. Thank you, America, and thank you, generous people. Many of the thousands donating see Manon as the generous one. Before COVID-19 hit, he was serving up to 80 free meals to people in need every day. I used to see people looking for food in the trash cans, and it would break my heart, Manon told NBC. The streets of D.C. became deserted as people began working from home in the pandemic. Manon had to let his, pe- had to let his employees go, and he had to close the grill. Uh, at a loss, a family member decided to launch a GoFundMe campaign for the popular restaurant on November 11th. Abdul Manon wrote, we are underwater and looking to survive this season, uh, looking to survive this season. So the doors do not close on Sakina Halal Grill. Every cent is equally important in keeping this dream uh, and important community resource alive. So please do what you can. We appreciate your support and your prayers. With that campaign still going, still going strong more than a month on, the restaurant has the restaurant serves anyone no matter their circumstances. Looks it looks the restaurant that uh, serves anyone no matter their circumstances looks set to last through these difficult times. Um, I think that's incredibly beautiful. It's like I don't think that this man, Mr. Mannon, was doing anything other than what his heart was telling him to do. And when he fell on hard times, the community galvanized behind him and had his back. Yeah. And I think that's the definition of karma. And karma works, works both ways. You can think that you can do wrong to people and it'll never come back around. And it might not come around for a long time. But karma has a way of swinging. It's like a pendulum, man. That, that pendulum will swing back your direction, good or bad. I really do believe that. I've, I've, felt, I've faced a lot of good karma in my life. And I think that's you know just based on me just following my life compass and, and trying to do the right thing whenever the uh, situation arises. So that's my good vibe story. Shout out to them and shout out to GoFundMe and shout out to all those 7,000 people that decided to keep this business that helps feed people that are in hard times alive. Yeah. Um, my good vibe this week is about um, a Florida man pays off utility bills for dozens of struggling families for the second year in a row. Oh, wow. And yet another bid to rebrand himself in a more positive light. This week's Florida man made the news as a good Samaritan once again. And, it got, it got, I'm guessing he, like, um, there was another story where he snatched a, a golf ball off an alligator or something. Oh. Um, that, that is, that's just, like, just an anecdotal story about some shit he does in his spare time? What is, what a, I, I'm guessing this is, not, this is, like, the second time he's been in the news, and the first time was Oh, because he, he did some crazy shit? Because he did some crazy shit. Okay. So, in a true humanitarian gesture, Mike Esmond a golf str- of Gulfstream, Florida, paid off $7,600 worth of outstanding utility bills for 114 of his neighbors um, who were facing cut-off deadlines. Mm. It's not the first time. Last year, Esmond launches his generous Christmas tradition by dueling... Um, wait, but what is it? Oh, but hey, by giving out 4600 to ensure community members in need without um, going without basic, basic services during the holiday season. Mm. He said, this year, to, to me, probably... This year to me probably is more meaningful than last year with the pandemic and all the people out of work having to stay home. The 74-year-old um, said to CNN interview um, reported by People. Hurricane Sally slammed us pretty good and hurt a lot of people. We still have a lot of blue blue roofs here and a lot of blue roofs here where they just covered, covered with uh, tarps. Mm. As the owner of Golf Breeze Pools and Spas, Esmond and... Esmond admits he uh, found himself in a very different financial position at the end of 2020 than those less fortunate. While the COVID-19 lockdown left money, left many people struggling, 
It also meant um, they were staying home, which proved to be um, a boom to his business. So that was my um, good vibe. Also, I wanted to speak on, um, I mean, this. I think this is the last show before of 2020. Yep. Um, what a fucking crazy year. I don't know how 2021 is going to be. Hopefully. Don't make any predictions. Please. Hopefully it's better than 2020. <laughs> um, you just, you just I, sealed that it won't be. Just, you, just, <laughs> you just sealed that it won't be. Well, before I said the, the 20, the 20s might be the, the worst whole, the whole possible decade. decade ever. You said the whole decade. Um, but other than that, we had for the podcast, we had a great year. Met a lot of, we have gained a lot of new listeners, met a lot of new people. For sure. Um, shout out to uh, the oh. other podcasts that we've collaborated with that, that helped us out. Absolutely. Um, shout out to any, anybody who has hopped on the train recently and yeah, anybody yeah. who's been on the train from the beginning. It's been a crazy ride and, you know, thank you very much to all those people. Yeah. It's, uh, it, ha- it has been a, it has been a good year in the aspect of growing the podcast and yeah. growing our, uh, abilities in podcasting and growing the, you know, the technical sounds. I think we, you know, we progressed in those ways a lot this year. I think the quality has gone up and that's a, that's a bright spot for, you know, for the year for me. I yeah. do enjoy this very much, and I want it to be as good as it can possibly be. So that is a bright spot. Yeah. But I would trade this podcast being more <laughs> shitty for a lot oh, less yeah, things yeah, to yeah. have happened this year. <laughs> but yeah, man. Um, you know, uh, listen, positive energy, and we're going in with high hopes into the new year. And um, you know, we gotta hope for the best, yeah. but prepare for the worst. <laughs> just, I do have just, a suggestion for this week, though. Have you listened to the podcast Dictators? No, I have not. I've heard about it though, but I have yeah. not listened to it. I start listening to it. I love it. Good. I'm. Um, I'm. I skipped around. Um, but you like H one's about a different dictator, right? Yeah, but I skipped around to the ones I know. Yeah, sure. And then I get around to the other. One. Right, right, right. So I started with um, Kim Kim Jong Kim Jong Il. Mm-hmm. I meant to do his father, but sure. now I got to go back. I got to finish him and then go back to. Kim Kim Jong what is Kim? Well, Kim Jong Un is the the one That's now. The now I'm talking about Kim, Kim Jong Il is the one throwback hit before him. Oh, it's a guy before him. But it's Kim. Oh, I'm, I'm reading right now. Is it Kim Il Sung? Kim Il Sung. Okay, the, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. The, okay, that's yeah. the first got one. It. Okay, and got it, got it. I'm doing Kim Kim Jong Il right which now. Is his son. Oh wow. And then Kim Jong Un going is down the line. The one that's now. Yeah. Yeah. Motherfuckers, those motherfuckers are wild. Oh yeah. North, North Korea is nuts. <laughs> man. North, North Korea is nuts, man. If you ever, you know, again, it's another thing to think about. 2020 has been incredibly tough. It's been 2020 in North Korea for a very long time. I mean, you know, they they are deprived those people of food. They have all these. They're lying to the media. They're lying to the people. They're lying to the world about yeah. all these great things that they're doing. It's insane what's going on in North Korea, and you can't leave. It's wild. Yeah, North Korea is wild. So, you know, I mean, let's just hope that doesn't uh, make its way here, and let's keep a positive hopes and 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 uh, and, and, and um, go into twenty twenty one with you know positive energy. And but again, stay prepared for the worst. Keep your keep toilet paper in your pantry and, and paper towels and all that kind of stuff. And you know, and, and just in case they go back to one per person again, you know. But <clears throat> that's a little bit of advice. I don't have any um, recommendations going into twenty. 21 um i think i've already mentioned on here that your honor is on showtime it's a great show so far and you should watch that and uh you know you know uh there's tons of great podcasts out there thinking of a couple offhand i would say you know i don't know wine and crime is amazing once upon a crime is amazing um you know jensen holds the murder squad great podcast and uh tiger belly these are just some of the ones I listen to on a regular basis. Uh, Tiger Belly, YMH, your mom's house podcast. It's a great podcast. It ain't uh, for everybody. It's not for everybody at all. But it, <laughs> if you, yeah, it's, it's like if you like if you like Tosh Point oh, but 
way worse than Tosh.0, you should listen to your mom's house. Uh, I really enjoy that podcast. But anyway, uh, that's enough of all that. Um, This has been another episode of Affirmative Murder. Thank you all for uh, all the support in 2020, and uh, we'll see you guys next year. Yeah, happy new year. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.